Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. You can find us on Twitter, X at political underscore beats. Also on Facebook, you can subscribe to our feed for new episodes. Get them through Apple Podcasts, through Google Podcasts while it lasts. Stitcher, tune in or over at... Na- Actually, Stitcher's gone too. I got I to gotta refresh my sheet. Uh, National Review as well. NationalReview.com is where to find us there. And we uh, also encourage you to check out our Patreon page. Growing by the day, patreon.com slash politicalbeats. Support us, help the show stay ad-free, as it has been for a long time now. We have entry level for support and voting privileges on a few things and also a few extras here and there. Mid-level for early access to all our main shows at a higher audio quality, you'll notice. And our upper-level best friends for early access, higher audio quality, monthly exclusive content episodes, remastered old shows, playlists, and much more. All of that at patreon.com slash political beats. Now the part of the program where we acknowledge and thank our supporters specifically, at least some of them, including new supporters since our last release, including Mac, Michael, and Jim Peterson, and some of our long-standing Patreon supporters like Don Walheim, Wendy Toriel, Jeff Peak, Adam Anderson, Matt Decker, Barton Vaughn, Sean Hackbarth, Norman Fleischer, Chuck Turner, and Perry Young. Thank you and the rest of you who support us over at patreon.com slash political beats. We can't do it without you. My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on X, formerly Twitter, at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by as always. And despite what you might hear, I promise you it is the one, the only Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? Well, you know, they tried to take me out of commission. They tried to put me on the shelf, Scott, but nothing doing. I'm back in track. I'm feeling better. Here I am, the last of the steam-powered podcasters. (laughs) It is a uh, new and improved Jeff for the year 2024. Uh, So congratulations to him. Uh, After battling through what we found out today was full-blown pneumonia over the holiday season. He's back. It was bad. He's better than ever. At Esoteric CD on X. And our guest on today's program is the Gerald R. Ford Senior Non-Residential Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, AEI.org. Also the author of a number of great books, including most recently, James Madison, America's First Politician, and Democracy or Republic. He's Jay Cost. Jay, welcome back. Hey, Scott. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me, guys. Always happy to talk about the kinks. Um, Great to be here. And as we begin, there have been a few changes and a few new books since the last time we talked. So let people know what's been going on with Jay Cost. Yeah. Well, again, thanks for having me. So um, I've been writing books uh, pretty much nonstop since 2011. Um, And I I don't have one I'm writing right now, and it feels kind of weird to be honest, but I've finished in 2021, I finished a biography of James Madison, um, kind of a nerdy biography, which fits because he was our nerdiest president. Finished that in 2021, and then I had been working, I've been working for the American Enterprise Institute since 2018 and just bouncing ideas off and through them with reports and whatnot. And this year, 
um, just this fall, actually published a book, a small book through them, uh, like, as you said, Scott, Democracy or Republic. And it's based on a lot of the stuff that I had already worked on for them, just kind of reworked it and tries to answer the title question. What is this a democracy or republic? So. And we should mention, since the last time we talked, you're a doctor, right? Dr. Yeah. Jay Cost. <laughs> Yes, but as uh, as my as I I like to tell my students, I'm a fake doctor. So if you if you see me in an airplane, and, you know somebody's sick right. in an airplane, don't ask for me. I'm I'm a fake doctor. If you're so. choking, Jay can't help you. I mean, I can't I can't help you. That's yes, right. Right. Maybe uh, I can explain the, a- explain the politics of FAA regulations while you're choking, but that's about <laughs> it. Helpful. <laughs> yeah. And Jay is back with us today to do something brand new. Uh, Well, it's old and it's brand new. The first time ever on Political Beats, we are are redoing an episode for Mm -hmm. a couple of reasons. And I guess before uh, we sort of let Jay set the table on the kinks, Jeff and I should explain why we're doing it. So we're, as I I put it in the title, it's the kinks, do it again. Uh, This is part one. And that's one big change from what we did initially. But the kinks we did with Jay very early on in this show's existence. And for a number of reasons, it's a show that Jeff and I have always felt we could do better. We, we, we weren't you know, ready for it yet. Yeah, to the, be perfectly honest, you know, like it, it was early in our show. We didn't have the courage to like take an artist and say, well, this just requires more than one episode yet. Because we didn't really know how long the target episodes were even going to be at that point. We just thought that this one was an unusually long episode. Ha, ha, ha. We would learn so much about political <laughs> beats in the years to come. So for years, like, it just nagged at me. I remember going back and listening to it just once randomly. Like, it might have been 2018 or 19 or something like that. Like, I was, like, strolling my newborn kid around and kind of cringing every time I was like, oh, there should be some discussion of this there. Where's the missing clip? You know, and and and, and I think the, the funny thing is the first instinct we might have had was, like, can we just try to remix this one? And then, of course, the funny thing is, is that Scott didn't have the original master tapes to this episode anyway so we couldn't do that and that was when the idea was born you know someday we gotta just do this one all over again day is today yeah I, I went back and i didn't listen to the whole thing but skimmed through it like i think for something else which is a fairly significant album we discussed one song maybe two songs um that's not the way the show is going to go in the future so we needed more time we needed to mix it better we needed more of jay's time in the original episode we didn't think it was going to go quite that long jay had to go pick up kids we had to rush through the last what, five years or so of the Kinks discography. It was just very jumbled at the end. And uh, the time was right. It has been, if I checked my notes correctly, seven years, my goodness gracious. Wow. Uh, six yeah. years, seven years since we did the original recording for the Kinks. And now we feel 
After 130 shows, we might have the format down the way we want it, and we can come back and tackle this again. So all of also, that is... finally, I feel like I know a little something about this band. I didn't really, you know, before. <laughs> you know, now I think I got a handle on them. <laughs> all of that is preface to welcoming back Jay to the conversation and asking him to tell us uh, why you love the Kinks, how you found out about them, and why other people should care about this music. And I should mention very quickly, this is part one of two, so we are splitting this up and plan today to go all the way through Village Green Preservation Society. That's the plan. Jay, over to you. Yeah, well, you know, I it's interesting. Um, I, um, I'm a big Kinks fan, obviously, and I got into the band through, really in a lot of respects, through the last album that we're going to be talking today, uh, about today, the Village Green Preservation Society, uh, which came out in 1968. Um, but commercially speaking, that album was a total and complete dud. It, it It's something that has been rediscovered since by, I would say, probably record nerds, of which I, I am one. Um, and But that's one of the things that makes the kink so interesting as as well, is, is because they had and i would say probably still have a huge fan base that was built not on the back of this amazing five-star record that's really just one of the best pieces of music ever committed to vinyl of all time i mean they have that but just their relentless touring in the united states in the 1970s built for them um really rebuilt for them uh, uh, an american fan base and that to me is one of the really interesting things about this band is that there's so many different aspects or faces or uh, or, or perspectives of this band that just kept reinventing itself and never having gotten quite the commercial success that I think they probably deserved. They nevertheless carried on and have just left this fantastic discography for us to go and dig into. And it's just endlessly surprising and endlessly enjoyable. They're just, they're just wonderful. Not me. Reach for the sky And man made the motor car Learn how to drive But he didn't make the flowers And he didn't make the trees And he didn't make you And he didn't make me And he's got no right Turn us into machines No, he's got no right at all Cause we are all God's children And they got no right to change us Oh, we gotta go back The way the good Lord made us all Bye uh, in-depth introduction to the Kinks is very similar to Jay's in that, you know, you think about the Kinks' long career, and, I, I, you know, I see like three tent poles. You have the very early singles, which everybody knows and are played very often, and you hear all the time, you really got me all day and all night, tired of waiting. Then you've got, you know, 1970 and Lola, 
very popular, again, very, very well known. And then you probably have to go all the way up to like Come Dancing because the, even that late 70s arena rock stuff, which I think has a lot of merit to it, has been lost to time. It's not played very much. It's not very well known. Mm -hmm. So you go into the early 80s and Come Dancing, I think was a top 20, if not a top 10 hit for the band. And people know that song. But the really interesting thing about the Kinks is all the stuff that happens between those tent poles, the late 60s era, uh, you know, the early 70s stuff just after uh, Lola and the rest of that Lola album and the late 70s stuff and even some of the early 80s stuff before Come Dancing. It's all so interesting and rewarding. And it's, an, uh, it's such an unusual shape of a, of a career because if you sort of just, you know, really quick and dirty, the Kinks were, you know, very big on both sides of the Atlantic early on. Then they were only kind of big in Britain for a bit. Then they weren't big anywhere at all for a pretty long time. Then, as Jay mentioned, through the touring of the U.S. in the mid-late 70s, they become very big in the U.S. again, but pretty much non-entities in Britain in terms of chart success. Uh, so it's a very unusual career path. I'm shopping at Woolworths and stores Getting back to my original point, my, my entry into the non-tentpole uh, world of the kinks was also Village Green Preservation Society. I've mentioned my college friend, Zach Peterson, a lot of a bunch of times during the course of our shows. And he's the guy who would take these cool records, uh, CDs, and, and put them in my hand and say, you've got to hear this. You like this. You're going to love this. And, you know, I, as I said, he, he gave me Big Star and gave me love and gave me... Um, uh, not Flying Burrito Brothers, but uh, uh, The Birds and Sweetheart of the Rodeo. And he handed me Village Green Preservation Society and said, you've got to hear this album. And of course I did, because it's one of the greatest. Um, and so that's where the entry point happens. And you begin to explore the other albums that were not very good sellers. As Jay mentioned, these were total busts in terms of sales numbers. Most of these great Kinks records we're going to talk about didn't sell a whole lot at the time. They've been rediscovered over the course of many, many years. You know, the dynamics of the band, it's one of those brotherly combination, uh, Ray and Dave Davis. And much like other brotherly combinations in rock and roll, highly combustible at times, uh, a lot of friction, which probably drives a lot of the great music over the years. Um, at times, perhaps they were too British for the US. At times, they were too American for the UK. Again, there's so many different shades and sides to the kinks. But what remains is the high quality and at times just immaculate recordings of some of this music. Um, they weren't immaculate to begin with, but over time they really figured out what they were doing. And some of this stuff just sounds magical, even 40, 50 years down the road. And I'm thankful for the opportunity. I'm thankful Jay's back. Thankful for the opportunity that we can go back and do it again. The days go by and you wish you were a different guy, different friends, a 
first thing I'm going to start by saying is I haven't gone back to listen to our old episode, you know, you know, in preparation for this show. And, and uh, I was determined not to because I was I, I realized that if I heard myself saying the same points that I'm going to make again, I'll cringe. So I have no idea if I'm going to repeat myself. I'm going to tell you the story or at least try to see if I can even half remember when I first became aware that the kinks were something else, that there was something else to the kinks. Because, of course, what did you know about them when you grew up? You heard you really got me. You heard all day and all night. You know, you, you heard uh, see my friends if you were lucky. And, you know, it was these these very, you know, catchy, immediate 60s oldies. You thought of them as oldies. I didn't think of those songs, even though they were a lot of, there's a lot of aggressive rock energy in them. I didn't think of them in the way I thought of, say, like the Beatles, the Who, or the Stones. They were just sort of like... Oh, they're part of like that early British invasion scene. And then only vaguely in the back of my head did it occur to me like, you know, that's also the same band that does that Sunny Afternoon song, which I kind of sort of knew out of the corner of my ear. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, they also do Lola. You know, yeah, Lola, where did that come from? I knew that from a Weird Al Yankovic parody of all things. hints that there was something more to the kinks than just being that early 60s hits act but they really didn't start uh, to come to the fore for me until i picked up books and i started reading and of course one thing you can say about the traditional 60s rock critics and those guys there's a lot of bad things you can say about them but they really carried a flag for the kinks and it shows up in their remaining writings in a way that really, really motivated me. Everybody at the time realized that this was fantastic music that nobody was buying because it was so uncommercial, particularly in America. They looked at the Britishism of the late 60s kinks and thought, wow, what is that? I've never heard anything like that. And I wanted to hear something I'd never heard either. So what did I do? I turned to a compilation. And this is really my first experience with the Kinks. It's a two-CD set I got called The Kink Chronicles, which to this day is still one of the most memorable compilations of all time. I'm not going to say it's the best because it's so quixotically assembled, you know, with like, you know, personal favorites and B-sides and weird selections of album tracks. But in terms of displaying a side of a band that I had previously thought was like, you know, all day and all of the night. Uh, and then I hear, uh, what is this song? Victoria? What is the Waterloo Sunset? Wonder Boy? Polly? Mindless Child of Motherhood? I'm hearing songs and, you know, Lola's on there. Great. I got the hit I was looking for. But nothing else I was expecting because this was like a window into a different world. There were those uh, royal mounted guards on the cover of the album. You know, that really told you everything you needed to know about how this was. a You, know, you were taking a trip to Britain, to a different place, to not America, emphatically not America. And it was the most intriguing way to get into this group of all precisely because those album cuts were so rare. The one that really intrigued me the most was this weird little clinkety clackety little piano based stomp 
called We Are the Village Green Preservation Society. I never heard anything like it. I couldn't tell whether they were being sincere when they were talking about how, like, you know, God bless, you know, China cups and virginity and all of this, or like, are they taking the piss? Mm-hmm. I had no idea. And it was the only song from the album that was on this set. So I was like, crap, no wonder. I mean, they're clever. The guy who made this was like a longtime fan and he knew how to hook you. That one song made you just wonder what the heck else could be on this record. We are the village green preservation society. God save the duck, portable and variety. We are the desperate and appreciation society. God save the trophy jam with all the different varieties. Serving the old ways from being Village Green, that record alone, just as you guys both have already mentioned, it's, it clearly had a major effect on all three of us. And then from that point on, I started exploring the bizarre depths that I had for no idea even existed of what the kinks were up to in the late 60s. That's why this episode in particular, part one of this thing, is going to be something that I'm really looking forward to doing because to find out that this kind of music was going on when I was in high school. Remember, my experience of Britain at that point was like the Beatles, the Stones, the Who, you know, very trad in that respect. And then here was a completely alternate current. This was like the band acting in reaction to everything in the American musical scene. It was that strange, that out of sync with every other trend. It couldn't help but make you sit up and say, what was going on with Ray Davis and Dave Davis that made them and this band take such an alternate course through that era? And and to find themselves, to find themselves with such like stunning lyrical and musical integrity with such simplicity as a band too. Um, that's what makes the kinks strange. You know, we, we actually never answered the question, why do the kinks matter? Well, the kinks matter not just because they're also hugely influential on every, gosh, you know, every band that came afterwards, especially the Brit pop groups. I mean, everything in the 90s, you know, you think of like Blur and Oasis and all the sort of very, you know, even, the, even early radio had has a lot of like formal kinks-like virtues to it. Um, but they're more important than that because there's something about Ray Davis's lyrical vision that ended up being unique. No one's ever done this. Again, people have tried. There have been countless pastiches. And every time you hear something that sounds like Ray Davis, people say, oh, that sounds like a Kinks song. That sounds like a Ray Davis song. But people, only one of these exists. There's only one Kinks. They plowed a unique furrow. And it was, you know, discovering this was just like one of the most important steps in the sort of expansion of my mind in terms of what I thought was possible um, with songwriting themes and with musical simplicity, finding ways to still be endlessly profound and complex with essentially just three chords in a simple four-guy ensemble. I met her in a club down in old Soho where you drink champagne and taste just like Coca-Cola I can't stand Coca-Cola She walked up to me and she asked 
things turned out to be great and great in ways that you never would have anticipated from their debut albums or singles. And it's always fascinating now to go back and look at their earliest stuff and just wonder, like, was it all there at the start? How did it come about? Well, I mean, it's not that hard. I don't want to give too much, you know, the, the autobiography or the autobiography, the biography. All you need to know is that they grew up in northern London. OK, and, and it tastes as a suburb of London. I don't even know. Um, but it's not like the downtown. It's not like growing up in the heart of New York City. It was like growing up on a local street, a very kind of a nice, happy, domestic home. Him and his brother is his mother and father, a, a very quintessentially English and um, I don't know how you would characterize it. Sort of like a the normal – there's no British dream analogy to the American dream. But as it would turn out over time, as the kind of childhood and lifestyle that Ray Davis had growing up with his brother uh, faded away, he was going to discover that this kind of was his ideal dream. Just a nice childhood in the, in the 50s. Rock and roll comes along. He wants to be a rock and roller. And of course, the most amazing thing about the Kinks of all is that this is a band that's known for like their in, in, what's it, immense lyrical sophistication and the, the wide, you know, you know, music hall and various musical influences that they would draw on on their stuff. And of course, the earliest stuff is just straight up hardcore beat music. Um, you know, they uh, first started playing like, you know, in, you know, I think around the same kinds of clubs as early groups like the proto Yardbirds and whatnot. And they didn't really know what they were doing. Uh, what mattered most is that they found a drummer by the guy, a guy by the name of Mick Avery, who I think is going to end up being one of the most underrated characters in this story, who was a little bit different than a lot of other rock drummers in that time. Mostly just going bing, spash, bing, spash. Uh, Avery was a jazz guy. He had a background with jazz drumming, and that's going to show up again and again all over. Even their early B-sides had these jazzy shuffle beats. And then when they you know continue onwards into their British phase, he's going to add so much just with his basic, like, no frills versatility. The other guy was a bassist by the name of Pete Quaife, uh, who is going to be uh, pretty helpful playing, holding down the low end for uh, Dave Davis, the younger brother. Now, here's something. Does anybody have any insight into the brotherly dynamic between the kinks? Because, uh, of course, the one thing you need to understand is that this is a brother's band. And like many bands with brothers, it has a lot of fraternal, what, the harmony? Uh, a lot of fraternal harmony. Ray is the older brother. Dave is the younger brother. So uh, that kind of uh, angry squabbling thing. And here's a Dave. Dave is younger, doesn't know how to write as well. He's learning. He's the lead guitarist. He could barely play his instrument, but he's handsome and the girls love him. Whereas Ray <laughs> is the leader, but he's kind of awkward and gawky. Uh, you can just see immediately why these people started having fist fights on stage every day. <laughs> um, they're first. You know, because, you know, there's a lot of sibling rivalry between them going on. You know, their first single, they fell in with this guy, Shell Talmy, who's a producer on the scene, and I don't like him at all. He's the guy who also did early kinks, but uh, early kinks, um, early who. Um, but, you know, he did have a lot of, you know, studio connections, and he knew a lot of guys who could help out in the studio, guys like Jimmy Page, who would end up playing, you know, some, you know, second guitar on their early stuff, and also a fellow by the name of Nicky Hopkins. They took him to record those first few early singles. And I guess this is the beginning of the Kinks career, just sort of stumbling and finding their way a record deal and then recording their first big hit, the one that everyone knows them for, Long Tall Salad. What do you guys think <laughs> of Kinks' debut?
something that I think that with respect to their their childhood growing up um, is that Ray and Dave were the youngest siblings in a very large family. And they were the only they were the only boys, too. Um, And that ends up looming very large in a lot of respects in Ray's music, like like the song Come Dancing, for instance, is really um, a sort of a memory uh, of his long deceased older sister who had Mm -hmm. become like famous kind of for the day at the dance halls and she died suddenly um or the song rosie won't you please come home that's a that's a song about his sister rosie who had grown up and had moved to um australia with her husband which also ends up kind of being an inspiration for the kind of the third act so to speak of of uh, arthur um and i think the thing with the the brothers too is that dave was especially very Dave was most certainly the baby of the family. And so, and I think there was a while there where they actually, at least Dave did not live at the house with the rest of the family in, in Muswell Hill. So, right. And, and, and I think that's going to be a, a consistent theme through Ray's songwriting is this nostalgia, but also a uh, with an underlying kind of sadness there because there was sort of some family tragedy. I mean, his sister dying, but then as a as a you know as a teenager, his other sister leaving, moving off, and so his family life was really kind of interesting, or at least it will become interesting as Ray sort of uses it as inspiration for songs. Yes. And there's even, you know, the, the dynamic between the brothers is very much reflected on uh, a song we'll talk about later on something else, which is which is two sisters. Like it was not um, it was not below the radar screen that these were two very different individuals, brothers in the same family, but personality wise and and and, and all of that very, very different. And, and that shows through the early singles, too, and Dave's contributions, you know, uh, Jeff mentioned how Mick Avery playing drums is going to be such a big part of the story, and he is. And Dave being the other Davis, the the brother Davis, the the, the younger, um, I don't know if he's overlooked so much as maybe not fully appreciated because especially early on, you know, these, these very tightly controlled, uh, uh, very tightly constructed solos are very important to the Kinks sound. He would add value in different ways. He'd write occasionally. There's a few really good King songs coming up that are that are Dave songs. He'd sing occasionally, not quite the singer that Ray was, right? But his contributions to the Kinks are, are but he are, had some rock in his voice, unlike yes, Ray. He did. That's the thing, and that's also I think important to this first album as we talk about the Kinks debut from 1964 because. This is not the kind of music we're going to hear from them in three or four years. This is very, you know, blues based, uh, a lot of covers. I think there's only five originals on this first album. The rest are blues covers or some some songs written by Shel Talmy um, that that are put on the album. And you know, they're they're pretty simplistic. Well, I don't need you, Surely have that. 
I think these first two albums especially, there's, I mean, well, there's not a ton to talk about. Uh, the songs that you know are the ones you need to know, the ones that were the singles. And I know Jeff will talk uh, a, a few uh, B-sides and a few tracks like that that probably come through the cracks, but there aren't exactly a ton of hidden gems on this debut album. Um, there's there's echoes of other songs, right? You can tell where the influences come from and how they're listening to this band. And, uh, you know, So Mystifying sounds a lot like It's All Over Now from The Stones, a few, a few tracks early on in which the, the, the feel and the flow sort of is taken from some Stone songs. And it works vice versa down the road, too. The Stones take some cues from the Kinks as well. Um, it is funny, though, you know, we'll talk about these albums in their in their UK releases. This original uh, or debut Kinks album, you look through and it's, you know, 210,000 plays on YouTube Music where I listen and 127,000 plays, lifetime plays and and then you get to a little song called You Really Got Me, and it's 37 million plays. So there is <laughs> there is one song on the album that sort of stands above the rest, and it's part of that early string of very key singles for the band. Well, the story of that one is interesting. So, like, they put out Long Tall Sally. As you can imagine, the Beatles weren't exactly breaking a sweat with that, right? It's like a very kind of goofy, awkward cover version. And then for their second version, Ray decided, well, I got to write something. And I mean, he wrote basically his attempt at a Lennon McCartney song, which is You Still Want Me, mm-hmm. and then, which is not that good. Uh, but then the B-side's kind of clever, called You Do Something to Me. It's kind of a wistful little, that one's the first Kinks song that sounds a little bit like the Kinks. There's also a really great um, outtake of all things from this era called I Don't Need You Anymore. It's got their really early Kinks energy to it in a way that none of the actual singles do. But of course, these things flopped. And so the record label said, yo, buddy, we're going to annul your... They said they threatened they would annul the Kinks contract unless their third single was a hit. So that's when Ray Davies had the gun to his head. <laughs> and so what does he do? He comes up with, you really got me. You really got me is actually pretty singular. We just treat it as, you really got me. Everybody knows it. David Lee Roth can't sing it, right? But it's more than just that. It's the birth of a guitar tone. <laughs> guitar sound coming out of any any uh, 45 anywhere whether it was in america or in england that was something that where the americans were like listening to what the heck it was coming across the pond and thinking well the british have stolen a march on us once again because the slash guitar sound and that mm-hmm. guitar solo i think apparently dave davis like you know took his amplifiers and just cut them up or something like that to get a lot of distortion and roughness out of it uh, that's an amazing little evolution, just a little milepost, you know, in, in, in the sonic evolution of rock and roll. And the irony, of course, is that this is the legacy the kicks were going to end up going on to repudiate, of all things. Oh, 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 oh,
how can you repudiate what you really got me? It's an all-time classic. Um, of course, then that leads you to the debut album, which is, of course, you know, the, the most important album of the King's discography. It'll be making my top two. And, and this is, I this and kind of Kinks, I think, compete for the best of this era. Obviously, no, it's 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 a very awkward debut record. I think it's better than its rep, and it's superior to the second one. Uh, Dave actually does a good job on Beautiful Delilah. That's a Chuck Berry song. It's the one that opens the record. And I like Just Can't Go to Sleep, nifty little UK 64-year-old rock song. But yeah, you're right. This thing falls apart on side two with all that Shell Tommy film where like right. half of it he wrote. Yep. Yeah, it's just like, you know, everyone's getting songwriting royalties. This is not an artistic proposition. It's a pretty good cover of Too Much Monkey Business hiding away on the other end of that. Working in the fitness station, give me a check, pop a wheel, check the oil, check the tires, throw the gas. I mean, what do you do? What's interesting to me is to judge this record basically compared by its peers at the time. So, what were the Beatles doing in 1964? Well, a hard day's night. Good luck, buddy. They're light years ahead of everyone else. What were the Rolling Stones doing? Nothing. They didn't even have an album out yet. They had singles. What were the Who doing? Nothing. The Who didn't have an album out. They had singles in 1965. It's easy to forget how early on the scene the Hollies uh, the Hollies you see I was thinking the Hollies are the only other band that have an album out this time and it was not good okay the Kinks were actually one of the first movers which is one of the reasons why their early two albums are so awkward a lot of these other classic British invasion bands that we think of really hadn't even bothered to find their footing and put out real records yet not until 65 so yeah the first Kinks album other than you really got me I mean it's not exactly that great but then again the Dussel does have Stop Your Sobbing which you know I, I've always liked this one just as much as the Pretenders version even if ultimately Chrissy Hine I guess you can say does make that song her own uh, you know it's um it's really interesting that sort of moment where a rock band or anybody i mean if you read any kind of biography there's a moment where the the subject of the biography becomes worthy of a biography like why are you reading about this person why are right? we here right why are we here right and we're not there because of long tall sally yet. right but when you listen to you really got me and and like you said jeff i mean the song has been played so many times that it's easy to sort of just forget how crazy innovative it was and that's why that's why we're there um, and, you know, it, it was a song that they end up walking away from. I mean, you you if you listen to that song and I told you if you didn't know anything else about the kinks and I played you that song and then I told you this band would go on to be one of the biggest um, rock bands of the British invasion, you'd probably think, oh, they invented hard rock. And it, that's right. what, you, that's you what would say it makes sense, but you would never know how they made it right, right. you so wrong you'd think oh they're like they're like the band you would go on to describe it be like no that's that's cream that's not the kinks um and and you know their first album i i will say i, I think from a historical perspective 
you know, we're not yet at the point in this history of rock and roll where albums, LPs, long players become the major artistic focus, right? Like the uh, LPs were usually or were very often Christmas time cash-ins, which is sort of what we see with the Kinks' first album. It's released it's rubber, on... It's, it's Rubber Soul, literally the album that changed those rules, and that was right. like November 65. But prior right. to that, everything was different in terms is of how albums were seen. Yeah. Right. And so what you, what you see with this is they're very clearly scrambling to put together enough material, and they don't really have it yet. Mm-hmm. Um and I, so I would, a couple comments. I, I love Ray's version of Stop Your Sobbing. And I think if I was going to say, okay, well, this is what, this is the thread through which the kinks are going to, are going to, this is the thread that they're going to follow or whatever. If you listen to the lyrics of You Really Got Me, um, the, the, it, you, we want to think, oh, this is a Beatles lyric set to a hard rocking guitar riff, but it's not like the main character in You Really Got Me is not well. <laughs> he's, he has, he's not in love. I mean, he is in love, but he's like obsessed. And there's also a little bit of codependence in there. There's insomnia. Um, it's just a kind of person who's got issues and, that is something that Ray's going to end up exploring in depth in the future. Also, I think the same with the song Stop Your Sobbing, which is a very, um, in my notes when I was writing, you know, I was re-listening to their discography, I wrote that um, it's a kinky lyric with a kinky delivery. Like that sort of a well-named band <laughs> is that they're just not kinky in a sexual sense, but just a little off. There's one thing you gotta do. Stop subbing now, yeah. Stop it, stop it. Gotta stop subbing now. They're just a little off. And and I think both of those songs end up being really, um, you know, long term. But I, I do think that on the, the first album, I really think that, that Dave, Dave's contributions are what save these from just being virtually nothing. Like like you mentioned, um, Jeff, beautiful Delilah. He opens a couple of of the of the LPs, the early LPs, because he's got a voice mm-hmm. that is much more um, rock and roll. You know, when when you listen to like, you know, 
Ray do bald headed woman. It's like, well, if you're going to listen to a British invasion band, do bald headed woman, you're going to, you listen to the who, or if you listen to Ray's version of God love, if you want it, you don't listen to that. You listen to the Yardbirds. I mean, he's just, this is just not where he is going to go, but it is interesting though, that, that Dave is really, really interesting, not just as a guitarist, but also as a vocalist in the first couple of, uh, in the first couple of years. No, I, I completely agree. He's going to really pull that trick off fantastically on the third album, which we're going to get to in a moment. But before we go any further, does anyone want to talk about You Really Got Me's European tour, by which I mean, of course, all day and all of the night, the follow up, you know, of course, what's the rule? You got a hit single, you got a <laughs> single that's just taking over the charts, both in America. What do you do? You write the exact same thing. And that's all day and all the night. Like, I've never heard yeah. a song that so obviously sounds exactly like You Really Got Me. I don't mind. I, I actually prefer it if you're going to ask me. Um, you know, the, the big fat thrash to it, the way it was, of course, stolen by the doors for Hello, I Love You. Mm -hmm. But here's the other thing. It's got a really great little jazz shuffle on the B-side called I Gotta Move. Real, real drive in this band as an ensemble that really doesn't often show up on these early records, and it's well worth hearing. <laughs> Wanna get left behind Go love my baby all the time I don't wanna get left alone I gotta move on down my baby's home And if my baby isn't there I wanna fill my gap and comb my hair Gotta move Gotta move to talk about all day and all and all the night yes it's so transparently an attempt to to uh, to do it again as we're doing with this episode you really got me went to number one in the uk so uh save the contract save the recording contract number seven in the U.S. and all day and all the night also went to seven in the U.S. but missed number one by one in the U.K. just number two. But like Jeff, I think if you get down to it and you, you made me choose between one or the other, I, I also choose all day and all of the night. It's not quite the 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 breakthrough. It's not setting a new template with that guitar, Dave's guitar, as you really got me. But I like it a little better as a song, I think. And to 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 Jay's point, it is it is reflective of the same themes, even of you really got me. I'm not content to be with you in the daytime. I want to be with you all of the time. Um, you and me, I, I believe that you and me last forever, not concerned about what you think about this. It's my belief. So, uh, you know, that same sort of obsessive theme is reflected in all day and all the night. I like, I love the solo, you know, Dave solo from, from this track is, is outstanding. And that it's slack tone way. He sings it too, makes him sound somewhat obsessive. Like, uh -huh. I believe right. you and me last, he almost sounds like a zombie, mm -hmm. you know, like, like he's coming for you in a very weird way. Yes. That's hilarious. Yes. Or, yeah, or, or under the influence and you know, of some sort of way. I believe that you and me last forever. Oh yeah, all day and nighttime yours leave me never.
Lord, Ray, as a singing voice, it's okay. But he he he's able to he does all sorts of things as a as a vocalist that he's are expressive. A, even yes, and like what you just said there, Jeff, like where he sort of slows down. I believe that you know, like a zombie or robot, he'll do stuff like that all the time to like give an expressiveness that the range that he can hit otherwise cannot accomplish. And th- to me, that's another aspect of like even though they're going to be moving away from this hard rock which by now has kind of become a formula they're still you can still kind of see oh yeah there they are like that's they're they're it's interesting also to sort of like look back at these songs and sort of think like that's what they took like that's what they they didn't take hard rock away from this right like which you'd think that they would do that's not what they did they Ray took his weird perspective on romance <laughs> and and his weird delivery. Right. It, it, the weird perspective on romance, actually, it's funny. It really does actually come back in the transparently obvious highlight of the next album. Kind of kinks. It's the follow-up. Basically, as Scott said, we take them as a pair. They really do feel this way. And I got to say, it's worse than the debut. The debut is no great shakes. This one is has got some really dire covers. And I think it's really telling that the best song on the record is an outtake from the debut, uh, which is tired of waiting for you. That was recorded at the same sessions as You Really Got Me. And it was just a question of which one was going to be the first single. So they held this one off. And that one is another side of Ray Davis. Now, this is the first time you hear something like this. This is a song you could hear going forward in the mm-hmm. King's career. Mm-hmm. There's something about the haltingness, the sort of surliness. I'm so tired. I'm so tired of waiting for you. And then there's that middle life where he just says, look, it's, it's your life and you can do what you want, you know. And he doesn't even seem very committal. He says, but please don't keep me waiting because I'm so tired. It's a strange song when you realize it. We think of it as a, a kinks classic and from this early phase but this right here and thank god because it's the best thing on this album which is otherwise pretty much garbage in fact actually i have more fun making fun of it than talking about its good sides kind of kinks has tired of waiting for you which is uh even though it goes back to those earliest sessions that's the part of their early singles that you can hear as part of their legacy for the rest of their career i was a sense too of how their the record company is pushing them right yes, like yes they they released tired of waiting for you as a single in january of 65 so like after christmas but keep them in and then they're already releasing kind of kinks by 
March. Like it's, there's just such a grind for these bands and, and, you know, Lennon and McCartney could keep up with it. Um, Jagger and Richards, I think had such a great, uh, like by the, being the first couple albums that they, they could not keep up with it in cover. terms of, they had, they, they had an R and B like songbook that they could, they had exactly and develop it. It's different. Yes. They didn't have to always do original. They didn't even come out with original album until aftermath in 66. Exactly. Exactly. And you can just sort of feel like, like Ray, by this point, Ray's written like five good songs and they've all been <laughs> like, that's the, uh, but I will say um, one thing that, that stands out on uh, for me um, again, Dave, I, I think insofar as this album works, Dave, Dave's wielding a lot or, or, or holding it up a lot, but the Big one, fan of nagging woman. Yeah, I like that oh, song. Gosh, it's awful. Just, uh, but you know what song I really do I, I has always resonated with me is nothing in the world can stop me worrying about that girl. Which mm-hmm. sure. Wes Anderson took that, and I'm not a I'm not a big new Wes Anderson. His first three movies, Bob the Rocket, Rushmore, and Royal Tenenbaums. Yes. Um where he was still like grounded in reality, I think, as opposed to these set pieces. But he does, he takes that song and he puts it to it's this. Rushmore, right? Yeah, it's yes. in Rushmore. Cool it's this scene Bill of Murray. like yeah. Bill Murray and just this incredibly expressive scene of like Bill Murray's spiritual like emptiness. And and I mean, it's a funny scene and it, it like, and for me, like, you know, Wes Anderson just just like pulled everything that that song has. And it's I, I really think like that song is in a lot of respects, again, pointing towards the future. Like when you you take the guitar, which is just this nice, soft acoustic guitar and and the voice, which is racing it in a very soft voice, a soft kind of melancholy voice and the lyric itself, which is. Once again, another romance song where the the entire plot is the interior mental state of the protagonist of the song, which is just not what, you know, romance songs are supposed to be. So that's the other song on that album that I really like. Tell me who can I turn to, just who can I believe? I try to put her out of my mind, she only calls me grief. Girl, whatever she's done, you know it hurts me deeply. Cause there's nothing in this world to stop me worrying about that girl. I know she's been with other fellas, why she keep on lying? I love that song too. The point I'll make about nothing in this world is one that will pop up again in the future in which you have this very sort of light language sort of song with these very darker foreboding either riffs or chords that sort of tell you that not everything is right and that's very clear in nothing in this world the other point i was going to make and jay sort of jumped me is 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 with wes anderson you know something cool about the kinks for probably all of us, you know, you had to work to get into them. You had to work to find this stuff. The albums didn't sell. They weren't readily available at, you know, used CD stores. Sometimes you had to have someone shove a a burn CD in your hand and say, listen to this or uh, really go deep 
to, to discover the, these records. And something Wes Anderson did with Rushmore and then future albums is sort of open that door for a lot of people because there, there are a number of un, uh, not unrecognized, but, but for a long time unloved Kinks songs that end up being used in some of his very famous movies and soundtracks. And that was another door opening for people to, to enter into this world of the Kinks. But for a long time, part of the reason the Kinks was so... Uh, so kind of geeky and, and you, you you just had to work to love them. You had to work to find them. And, and that was part of the attraction, I think, in some ways. The, the second uh, kind of Kinks record, and yet Jay mentioned, this is Rush recorded. You know, the, 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 the songs were done very quickly. And um, the, there's only a couple things I think I would mention. Um, I, I don't like their cover of, of Dancing in the Street. You know, oh, by, it's and, yeah, by it's, it's, it's really so bad. bad. By and large, I don't think they're a great cover band. You know, their, their early success were Never all with, it. right, their early success with all was all Ray originals. And the, the times they sort of, uh, sort of dabble into these covers, they're not great. They're not great. They're really great at playing their own music. The other two tracks from kind of kinks I would mention is um, Come On Now, which was the B-side of Tired of Waiting For You. That's a good track with some good energy. I don't know if this is the exact B-side or a different recording, but the version on kind of kinks is still good. Oh, and it's then, a B-side. It's a straight, yeah, that's okay, the one. straight B-side. And then the other one I, I think is so long because there are some echoes here of nothing in this world in terms of the way that it sounds. And there are a few things for to sort of push us into the future. I think lyrically, um, there's a reference in So Long to Got No Time for Muswell Town, Gonna Look Around Now, which is something you might do before you return and say, oh, this really was great, you know, th this period of my youth, which we're going to get into here very quickly. Um, and he says, the day I've seen everything I promised to return. And again, he will return very, very soon. Ray will return very soon to this idea of of the way things used to be. Uh, that's that's the that's the good way. That's the perfect way. It, it took here, him basically only a year of touring America to, to, to realize that. I've seen enough. Yeah. I'm back. <laughs> so those are the other, two, other two tracks I'd mentioned. Got no time for a small town. Wanna look around now. My old town was good to me. But no. Guess I'll say so long now. Don't even say a word. I'll turn my back and walk away. But on. The day that I've seen everything I promised to return So, so long, now I'm on my way So, so long, see you someday So long, so long, now I'm on my way So long, so long I, you know, let me just add to, I really like the last song of Something Better Beginning. I mean, I, well, that I was like, what I was going to say. Yeah, the, go, the, the, the guitar hook is amazing. The lyrics are kind of meh, but the I, I will say the phrase Something Better Beginning, it's really alluring. Like, ooh, what does that mean? That's just as a song title. It's just like, and it's, huh. a, and it's a question. It's yeah. not a statement. It, mm -hmm. Is this the start of another right? That's a good point. Yeah. I walked to home in the night. The moon shone bright as we walked in hell. I have known this joy once before. But it came to an end just as it had begun. 
step that I took with you But one thing closer to my mind Is this the start of another heartbreaker Or something better beginning Something better beginning Something better just see too like right after like they in my chronology that i wrote down they did after kind of kinks comes out in march i wonder why the march release followed immediately on the heels by another single everyone everybody's going to be happy i think is kind of of the early singles is probably my least favorite i really like the b-side just because it's so weird who will be the next in line um I the it's it, it's, it's, a, it's a song about the band's energy. There isn't any kind of melodic hook in it the way there yeah. are all the other famous King yeah. singles from this area. So what's actually happening to the Kinks during this period? It's the middle of 1965. Um, they don't actually put out any albums until the end of the year. Uh, but what happens in between? Well, isn't that a story, my friends? Because the Kinks go to America. And, you know, every <laughs> other British band seemed to go to America. And like, well, what do you do? You go, you play your shows. There's a lot of shrieking, screaming teeners. You, you, you get on your plane. You make sure the stage doesn't get invaded. How hard? could it possibly be how hard could it possibly be beloved british rock group to go in there and not get a lifetime ban from performing because that's what the kinks somehow managed to do the kinks of all people we think of the rolling stones think of the drugs and the sexcapades and you know all sorts of crime that they must have been up to in their days how did the Rolling Stones somehow manage to dodge a performing band? But the Kinks, the Kinks somehow got blocked from performing in the United States for five years on the basis of what they ended up doing in mid-1965 in the United States. I've never heard a great explanation as to what happened here. Short version, though, basically is that Ray and Dave Davis were willing to fight on stage in only the way that brothers can fight on stage, <laughs> where they just don't think there are any stakes because it's the same damn fight they've been having at home for the last 10 years already anyways. <laughs> Down and you don't hear me cry I need you 
one else to stand in your place. So they were like taking, they're like throwing microphones at one another and you know, chucking each other on the head with their guitars and fists here and there. And it's chaos. And believe it or not, the American Federation of Musicians, who I've never heard intervene in a like manner in any other example, uh, banned them. And, and so they came home in 65 and they could never go back as far as they were concerned to America. Um, I still don't understand how, like, of all the groups, why would the kinks who otherwise seem like reasonably polite fellows, Ray Davis writing about tea and China cups and all of this <laughs> later on in his career, the kinks were the ones that caught a band in 1965 as they're doing all of these sort of late period singles in their early beat phase. And I think this explains a lot of what's oh, coming yeah. next. Um, I don't know. Does anybody have any other real insight into this whole touring band thing? Because it's always been like one of those weird things that, boy, you can't really explain why the kinks turn where they're going to turn soon without it and it just still doesn't make any sense now I know just what I've been doing wrong life seems empty but it won't last for long I should go on this way There's a new world just opening for me Then I lied, but then I could be lying now Just can't tell when the devil's on the prowl I can't pretend well, I'm not sure I have any insight on it, but I, I, at least an observation is that I would say this is the first of several critical junctures in their career where the two of them shoot themselves in the foot. They are spectacularly successful at doing that. Actually, I, I'm kind of reminded of the other band that you guys had me on to do, the Black Crows, these two brothers who, who never get along with each other. And you can kind of see why, because both of them, both Ray and Dave are not really people pleasers. <laughs> and, you know, and you can see. To say the least, right? Ray's if you raise a weird guy. I mean, he's he just is. He's a weird guy, um, and it, it, and you could sort of see when you take sibling rivalry and mix it in with like you know musical brilliance plus just basic weirdness. But the Black Crows sort of have a similar thing, and the the Black Crows also just shoot themselves in the foot, just absolutely needlessly. Like I sort of think of this instance. And then the next instance I'd think of would be um, now it's a great record. And we'll talk about it in the second part, but following up Lola, which is like their path back to success. Mm -hmm. They follow up Lola. They get a new recording contract. They're free of pie. And what do they deliver? They deliver Muswell Hillbillies, which is like the album for like, 
you know, if you thought Village Green wasn't nerdy enough, <laughs> that you need Muswell Hillbillies, right? And it's sort of the like they just they they do this time and time again. They just have this this bad luck or just this kind of almost. But I was just gonna. Say, it's almost like this subconscious, like self destructive perversity that mm-hmm. they have. Legit. And I, I mean, That's another example would be that they they called it quits in 1996, right? And think about the insane amount of money that bands like the Kinks have made on the nostalgia circuit since 1996. These two could not bring themselves together to go and do a reunion tour circuit that like literally every band has managed to pull off. I mean, you hell, even uniquely in 96, too, which is the height of Brit pop, where like all the yeah. bands yeah. are thronging to the throne of the Kinks. And they're like, there could be no po- more popular kind of like ticket at that time but they're just like right. I can't stand Dave. even Roger, on stage. Roger Daltrey and Pete Townsend buried the hatchet over because <laughs> you know like the touring was so damn good over the last 25 years and these two to, to 30 years now and these they just can't do it it's it, which kind of makes them awesome too to be perfectly honest it's <laughs> it, it's a very rock and roll story like a very like self-destructive rock and roll story so it kind of makes them awesome when I from my pillow I dream you are there with me Though you are far away I know you'll always be near to me I go to sleep sleep and imagine that you're there with me I go to sleep sleep and imagine that you're there with me I look around me and So this takes us through this mid-period of 65 and it's the last part of like, I guess you'd say like the, the power rock kinks. Great singles here that we should at least mention before we move on. Like Set Me Free, which is again, very much a Ray Davis kind of a kinks kind of a rock song because it's much more melodic and mm-hmm. angular and based around this very kind of snaking, winding its way sort of a melody. But then it's B-side as I Need You, which is just straight up fire. See My Friends is another one that again, doesn't get as much credit as it deserves for introducing those weird Indian modalities. You know, see my friends fail across the water. All that stuff doesn't have any Indian instrumentation or anything like that. But Davis was very clear is that a lot of those sounds did come from like sounds that he was hearing in London, you know, on the streets and, you know, these these instruments, basically stuff coming back from India that was intriguing both him and, of course, working its way into the music of other people at the same time. Yeah, 
And I guess the one last thing we should talk about before we talk about the kink controversy is uh, a little EP, which, by the way, uh, kinks have a history of really obnoxious and grating K-related puns, right? Because, you know, they're the kinks with the K. So everything begins with a K, which led to one of the more embarrassing EP titles of the era called The Quiet Kinks. And that would be spelled, yes, that's right, (laughs) K-W-Y-E-T, Quiet kinks why should you care well there was one little song that was just packed away at the end of it that wasn't intended to be anything other than just an ep track to fill some time during a period where they were getting banned by the american federation of musicians something called a well-respected man and there's a reason we're talking about it because this this song more clearly than anything else this is the template for the kinks to come. An acoustic guitar, Ray Davis giving you a little character sketch about a very well put together guy who gets up in the morning and he gets all the stuff together. And he's also just been completely made a fool of by everyone in his life. Mm-hmm. But he's a well-respected man about town doing all the best things so conservatively. This points the way forward in a couple of ways, as Jeff mentioned, from a lyrical perspective, you have this very distinct, interesting character sketch, this uh, uh, Ray's sort of mock um, self-satisfaction of, of, of this rich guy who uh, who believes he's better than the rest and his own sweat the smells the guy in the Sunday best. afternoon before his life yes, falls right, apart. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, but then the very next line, he hopes to grab his father's loot. Like, he's well-respected, but he still is not as successful as perhaps you think, and he's still reaching for more, but not in a in a uh, uh, over-the-table kind of way. And then from a musical perspective, this is the real beginning of the expansion of the band's musical aspirations uh, going toward this sort of British music hall, uh, what folk, acoustic folk sort of sound. And, you know, one of the things we'll discuss throughout these two parts is the way that the Kinks can do almost anything. They, they had their fingers in so many different musical genres from the beginning of the hard rock um, movement or the beginning of the hard rock sound to at times sort of campiness um, in in the mid-70s, certainly. And then these very lush and acoustic sort of folk musical uh, ballads that we have during this time period. And and even a little disco down the road that comes much, much later. But this well-respected man, this is the first time that I think those musical aspirations begin to take uh, some tangible results of where they really want to be in these next few years. he likes his own backyard and he likes his bags the best Cause he's better than the rest And his own sweat smells the best And he hopes to grab his father's boot When fate would pass his on Cause he's all so good And he's all so fine And he's all so healthy In his body and his mind He's a well-respected man about town You see it in this next album, the album that ends 1965 for the band called The Kink Controversy. First of all, one of my all-time favorite mid-60s rock album covers. Like an iconic image I've actually seen other groups like use as a tra- like, tribute and well, parody. Sleater Kinney did. Like, four I mean, panel images at the top. Yep. What'd you say? Sleater Kinney did it directly. Who is 
that's who it was. It's yeah. Slater Kinney. I knew it was them because that's in the back of my mind. Right. But such a great image. And it begins, you know, we, uh, Jay was talking about how uh, uh, Dave Davis was selected to open these albums. Well, this is a transitional album. It's the last of sort of that, that early rock energy, but it's also the first to have that different visionary look into what the kinks were going to come. And so it's not a perfect record, but it kind of gets at some of the most wonderful aspects of both. And boy, no better with Milk Cow Blues. It's a cover. It's the only kinks cover of all time that is obligatory. (laughs) It's the only good one. It's the one you need, and it just begins with such menace, you know. And all of a sudden, you just remember, like, hey, you know what? The Kinks were a band. The Kinks actually know how to play. When they tear off into this, and then Dave's voice just gets net hoarser and hoarser and weedier and weedier. His secret, both of their secrets, is that when they actually start like shouting, they sound like feral cats. That's a really good. No, that's that feral sound of theirs, and it works so well on Milk Cow Blues, and that's the way King Controversy opens. It's a throwback. It's the last time you're going to hear this kind of rock energy from the band, at least you know, without you know, wildly repurposed later on but gosh i love it thoughts for you on just the combination of kink controversy and well-respected man and what i had mentioned a moment ago ray's sort of like instinctive perversity i think we're start we're, we're starting to see it here where this is the period where you sort of see ray focusing on england more and you know they're sort of their commercial appeal in the states begins to decline in no small part because they can't tour in support of anything but also ray's musical and lyrical sensibilities are just becoming i think more english than certainly than you really got me which is just sort of just a guy who wants to have sex i mean that's a universal sentiment right these are these are much more english the a well-respected man is is very english it's a song about an Englishman. Um, and I think a, a couple thoughts for you on this, for you guys on this. Um, the first is the historical context. So where are we in England at this point? So it's 1965. So it's been a generation since the end of World War II. Um, England has more or less been rebuilt. And the youth in in the 60s i mean the who sort of get into this with the mods is is the young people of the 60s are really sort of interested in conspicuous consumption having been freed of the burdens of the war and also the rationing and all these things that even continued after the war and and london having been rebuilt um 
this is, you know, if you think about like swinging London, that's where this is coming from. This is this is an England that has emerged on the other side of World War Two with post-war prosperity that hasn't yet sort of degraded into the Stanley Baldwin you know, period of the seventies where you get stagflation everywhere. And what is interesting about this is, is that a lot of this is going to drive like the Beatles. I think like Norwegian wood is a good example of that. Is this, that's a song about a guy who's just at a girl's apartment. Uh, Cause he can be, cause you know, it's London in the mid sixties, you know, it's, it's Tuesday night, but we have money and we're not working. So let's just go smoke some weed and just get high. And, you know, of course, cause it's, it's got the, you know, weird ending at the end or not weird, but just a twist ending. Um, but what's interesting about Ray here is that Ray is not a fan of this. Um, and you see this sort of coming in a couple different directions all around the same time. So like well-respected man is, is his shot at the British professional class. And it sounds like you could say, okay, well, this is sort of like a youth. This is like, this is a, this is a shot at the establishment that the youth will appreciate because, you know, he does the best thing. So conservatively, you know, like Mm -hmm. you'd sort of think, okay, all right. So that's fine. But you know, they've fallen up, right? King Controversy is released once again, right around in time for Christmas. Yep. Um, and then right after Christmas, dedicated follower of fashion. That's a shot, real, really kind of a shot at his own audience, right? It's 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 a it's a shot of this conspicuous consumption. And and it's also and it sort of falls into place with, in a weird way, it falls into place with um uh, with, with well-respected man, because these people are just, they're, they're, they're in a herd mentality. They're not being, they're not be actually being individuals. They're all just sort of, they're just followers. They seek him here. They seek him there. His clothes are loud, but never square. It will make or break him, so he's got to buy the best Cause he's a dedicated follower of fashion And when he does his little rounds Round the boutiques of London town Pursuing all the latest fads and trends Cause he's a dedicated follower of fashion Oh yes he is Oh yes he is Oh yes he is Oh yes he is He thinks he is a flower to be looked at and then meanwhile, Jay, where is Ray? Where is Ray David? He's on an island! I'm on an island. He's on an island. And I've got nowhere to run because I'm the only one who's on the island. And guess what? He seems so happy to be on that island. That song, by the way, that's my favorite song in the King Kong. It's a great song. Mm -hmm. It's the pivotal song. That and Where'd All the Good Times Gone are the two pivotal lyrical songs on this They are. But so, I'm on an island. It's just like, this is like, you know, he, the island could be Britain or it could be like some random isolated place, but he's just never sounded more thrilled to be all left alone. All he needs is his girl. Bring my girl and that's it. I don't need anything else. I'm on the island.
that's going to be a key theme that, that he's going to follow up on. And, and a lot of like Ray's songs is going to be all I need is a sunny day or some nice weather. Right. <laughs> um, you know, the island could be Australia because at the end of Arthur, right. um, the third act of Arthur, Arthur goes off to Australia, which is supposed to be nice. So that's that's so that's one of his this sort of escapism, like a physical escapism. But also, I think the other song that is a critique or or sort of raise kind of evolving sense of things is where have all the good times gone, which is yep. it, it's increasingly he's he's going to be looking back at an England that he think is he thinks has now been lost. And it is not the England of swinging London. It's not the England of conspicuous consumption. It's not the England of his record buyers. It's the England of small country towns and villages, um, and it's the quiet country life. And, you know, even that for Ray is perverse, because one of the things that all of these British rockers like to do, as soon as any of them got any money, they'd all want to get a country house in, in the in the, like they all wanted to live like like. The, the house electric. in the country in a big sports car. It's, it's right. a classic line from the next album. Yeah, and they, but like Mick and Keith and, and even Brian Jones, or like the Stones do this. George Harrison does this, of course. They'll want it like the, the ideal life is to live the life of a country gentleman on an estate. But even Ray, that's not Ray's vision. Ray's vision is like community life in a small English town. It's, yeah. it's so it, – it's – it, it's almost as if you hear the some- there. There's the lyric there in this song, right? You know, Ma and Pa look back on all the things they used to do. Never had no money, and they always told the truth. Daddy didn't need no toys. Mm-hmm. Mama didn't need no boys. In other words, like she wasn't stepping out with like the pool boy while Dad stockbroker and in like Waybridge. And so he's talking about the good old days where they right. didn't need all these fancy things. Mom and Pa look back on all the things they used to do. Didn't have no money. What's going to be, you know, and in a lot of respects, this is sort of marking the beginning of their commercial decline. And you, even though musically they're getting better and, and you can sort of see like Ray doesn't fit. He's not a man of the times. This is not his time. And he's just in the songs. His best songs are usually going to be songs that are critical of the times, which I think is one reason why we're talking about them today, because they're timeless is really what they are. He's not, he's not involved in this sort of, you know, conspicuous consumption. He's a critic of it. He's a critic of the aspirational, you know, the sort of everybody fall in line and you'll get yours when, you know, just, just do what everybody else does and you'll get your piece of the action soon enough. And Ray's just sort of sitting outside of this, looking at it and judging it. And he's doing it in that way, the sensibility in which he could just, Cut it to pieces and just by telling a little story. It's amazing. 
Jay has done a phenomenal job of of summarizing kink controversy as far as I'm concerned. Um, you guys both mentioned I'm on an island, which, yes, is, I think, the best song on kink controversy. This is one of those songs. This is the note that I had that, uh, you know, some of these very early kinks songs are, are there. There are no real remasters or re- the original tapes are just so in such poor shape that you can't get that fidelity that you need. And I wish we could with I'm on an Island. It's so good in, in the way it is right now, but I think we would be able to hear even more. The, the, the piano is a bit murky in places in that mix. And I don't know if we'll ever hear anything that will sound better than the, the version we have currently. There are many places in which Ray is now, as Jay pointed out, just dipping that toe in the water and beginning this exploration of themes that would extend for the next, uh, what, five, six, seven years at this point, uh, escape in some way, escape from uh, present day and the pressures and the demands and, and the ability to be free, real freedom to do what you want, uh, to do what you want when you want it. And in isolation in a way too. not necessarily being reliant on others or anyone else for what makes you happy or what drives your life or what drives your day. All of that begins to be explored here on Kink Controversy, whether it is I'm on an island or uh, the world keeps going around or something like You Can't Win Very Late, which has really fantastic work by Nikki Hopkins, who is all over the place on this Kink Controversy album. And the one other point I would make is uh, the lead single, in fact, I think it might be the only specific single from this record is Till the End of the Day. And it is the one place that they look back a bit on their own work. I mean, till the end of the day is follows that line from "You really got me to all day and all the night." Uh, the well, power like the end chords, of an era, really. I mean, this right, is the exactly. End. This is the that's last the one. end. It's the yes, it's the last one. It's the love child of "You really got me and all day of the night," uh, and it does have Ray's themes lyrically of freedom and escape, but musically that those power chords, uh, you know, Dave's Dave's loud guitar sound. That's this is the end of it. This is the last of it for a long time. And it's the one song that they released as a single off the record, which was not really um, uh, a good indication of what was on King Controversy or where they would go next. Baby, I feel good from the moment I rise. Feel good from where they go next Jay already mentioned it but dedicated follower of fashion is you know if the last thing you'd heard from them was you know you really got me all day and all the night see my friends till the end of the day well here's a guy who you know and every time he pulls his frilly nylon panties right up (laughs) tight he is a dedicated follower of fashion 
the big clanging guitar chords, the attack, the direct attack on Carnaby Street, which is, you know, the swinging London stuff that Jay was talking about. Ray's contempt here is so beautiful precisely because, as, as Jay pointed out, they didn't expect him to go turn around and attack his own, his own in theory, his audience. <clears throat> he kind of you know, made it clear that Ray didn't care about who was supposed to be buying these records. I guess he just wanted to make the points that he needed to make with them, which is what makes the song so kind of, it, it's, a, it's a great little like, you know, music hall, dance hall tune, especially with Nicky Hopkins' piano. But again, just the willingness to set his entire reputation on fire and to piss <laughs> off everyone is just so wonderful with that song. And people were actually a little bit irked about it back in the day. If you go read the press clippings, there are a lot of people like, you know, who does Ray think he is making fun of everybody with, you know, all their – but boy, his take aged so well. And then incidentally, this is like, again, a transitional single between this, you know, between King Controversy and, and what is going to come next. But I just want to point out that the Kinks as a band often don't get their due. These guys could groove really well, and you're never going to hear a better example of that than the otherwise forgotten B-side, Sitting on My Sofa, which is just them with Nicky Hopkins working out, like in a way kind of like a good Stones B-side from that era would have sounded. Hmm. Except, you know, it's a tribute to laziness. What am I doing? I'm just sitting here on my sofa munching potato chips. But boy, the band with Hopkins in the background really cooks on that one. us to one of the most curious albums of all time. This one is one that my friend had recommended to me. Even after I'd gotten Village Green Preservation Society, he'd said to me, hey, you know, you should, that's a good one, but the one you really need to look out for is something called Face to Face. 1966's Face to Face. And I think it's fair to say, for me at least, that my reaction to this album was about as seismic as my reaction to Village Green one thing I have a very clear memory of in our first episode is how I consider this to be so transparently one of the two greatest Kinks albums of all time. It's obviously going to be one of the two on this episode, that's for sure. And yet Scott didn't seem to be particularly sold. He didn't seem to think it was nearly as great a leap forward. And for me, basically, the absolute beginning of the purest and most unfiltered classic Kinks era there is. This album is as close to perfect as they get, but I don't want to talk about it. I would actually like to talk, and I'd like to hear Scott talk about his reassessment face-to-face, maybe close to maybe being the greatest album the Kinks ever put out. He never Session and a 
Exactly what I said on the first uh, time we recorded this Kinks episode. What I can say with certainty is in preparation for this recording, I abs- I, and I did remember Jeff's praise for Face to Face from the first time around. And in preparing for this recording, uh, one of the most striking things about this era of the Kinks is how clearly, this time around at least, Face to Face became... It became apparent how great of a record face to face is. I, I I think it is a superior record to the one that will come next, which is something else, which is a great record in its own right. And um, though I hold Village Green in a very very special place in my heart for its entry point to uh, to, to to the lost world of the Kinks, face to face is awfully close. It's really close. This is a great great record um with this you know it's 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 a big leap forward from where they were on king controversy and it's the first time that ray can sort of go at length on these themes he had been developing the past couple of years on english class and and social structures in some places the music industry itself i mean there's a there's a song here called session man which is literally about a session man and specifically about Nicky Hopkins, the great. It's about the session man who's playing right. on the session. Yes, it's, 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 it's that way. <laughs> he's not paid I, I, to I think, it, just it, play. Right. This is the first album of theirs, by the way. It's all original tunes. There's no covers, and it's all sustained. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in 1966, every band looked around at what the Beatles had done and said, "Okay, well, either you level up or you're out as a major artist." The Stones were able to do it. The Who were able to do it, and the Kinks were able to do it, and that's why that's the British invasion, like sort of like hierarchy. Mm-hmm. These bands were able to make the transition into writing all of their own music. But the thing is, is if you've been listening to the Kinks discography from the beginning all the way through, you're not going to be prepared for what happens on Face to Face. It's so different from every album they put out prior to this. It's a record. It begins yeah. with you know the, the, the nagging phone. You know, was, I don't know if it's like sound effects, but whoever says like, oh, yes, please. At the end, you know, boom, 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 boom. another great Dave Davis opening on Party Line. This one, it was, boy, we just talked about it pretty recently on our phone songs episode, yes. didn't we now, Scott? Yes. Another all-time classic. <laughs> Party line was here when I arrived. The 
the momentum as an album mm-hmm. track listing is stunning. The first half of this record, just put it on. Every song tumbles as if it is pre-sequenced to follow into the one that comes right after it. That never lets you pause for a second. The whole thing actually feels like a suite. It's an amazing mm-hmm. achievement from a band that was, you know, you know, hanking at, honking out some really bad imitations and covers just as recently as their most, you know, <laughs> the, the album from 1965. All of a sudden you have Face to Face, which I think comes out in November of that year, but it was ready earlier. Sunday afternoons, like August of 66. They're a different band now. This is the band that's going to become beloved by millions of nerds and Betsit Rumuzos <laughs> the world over. This is the golden era of the kinks. And it, it just begins. I mean, where do I even start with a song like Rosie, won't you please come home? Which is, you know, we, we uh, mentioned it again. It's about, um, day of Ray's and Ray and Dave's older sister who left to go to Australia. And it just seems like this, like very kind of like, doom, 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 quiet, kind of an acoustic bass thing. And then all of a sudden Nicky Hopkins harpsichords come in and then they, they take over the piece. And then you realize that Hopkins is, keyboards are going to be contributing to everything throughout this album. Rosie, won't you please come home? Mama, don't know where you've been. Rosie, won't you please come home? Your room's clean and no one's in it. Oh, my Rosie, how I miss you. You are the world to me. face I'd focus on but I just wanted to start with one song which to me is it's I came back to it again you know this was we were preparing re-preparing for this show and I never fail to be amazed by Dandy mm-hmm. Dandy is a song mm. that is so deceptive because it's simple right this is a song if you guys play guitar this is a song when I picked up the acoustic guitar for the first time it's the easiest thing in the world to play it's just tricks on a D and an A chord anybody can learn it just from ear and then when you actually play it, it doesn't need the band. The band is awesome on the song. But that song as a songwriting achievement is stunning because it carries itself along with its own momentum. The momentum of its own chord changes gives it that onward rushing feel. So by the time he gets to that, and when you're old and gray, you will remember that it's said that two girls are too many, three's a crowd, and four you're dead. And you know what for what's Ray is making fun of Dave. He's having so much fun making yes. fun of Dave's ladies' man's way. And they're like, oh, there's you know, all you Dave Dave is like 40 girls chasing him out the door. And of course, Ray, this is of course the same kind of attitude that would create two sisters an album later. But this is the better song. And it is one of the most amazing, quiet little achievements of their career. Just because you think anybody can do that. No, you can't do that. You can't write that song. Nobody could write that song except Ray Dance. You know you're moving much too fast And Dandy You know you can't escape the past Look round And see the people settle down And when you're old and grey You will remember what they said The two girls are too many Three's a crowd and four you're dead Oh Dandy, Dandy When you're gonna give up 
your feet and hold now You always will be free You need no sympathy A bachelor you will stay Very quickly, this is another example of, I think you both were making this point earlier about the affectations that Ray will put on his lyrics and just the way he repeats that word the second time, right? Dandy, dandy. I can't yeah. do a Ray. But that's another example of him taking a very, a very, you know, flat lyric and, and making it mean something just by the way he changes the delivery in his voice. This walks dandy yeah. out so much. Like you just know he's singing about somebody. This, it's not an invention song. And of course he, he didn't admit it. He's singing about his brother. Yeah. This disgust that is portrayed and, and, and given to you just through the voice. Dandy is one of the, uh, the two, two, two songs that really turned me this time on face to face. And I guess before I tossed a jail mention the second one, I don't want to tease you and not give you the second one. The other song that really put me over the top this time in reviewing face to face is rainy day in June. What a great song that I, I mean, I'm sure I knew it, but I really discovered it this time through. And, you know, before face to face, Ray had a lot of problems, it had a nervous breakdown prior to recording face-to-face, in part inspired by or or, or caused by uh, his sister's uh, move to uh, Australia right around this time. And Rainy Day Day in June feels like a nervous breakdown song. You have the the, the effects, the rain, the thunder that come through, and lyrically, right, all the light disappeared and faded in the gloom. There was no hope, no reasoning. Um, it's a really wonderful set of Ray lyrics and the way that song moves. I love the way that Jeff described the, the, the momentum in, in Dandy, the way it builds out itself. There are so many songs like that on, on Face to Face. And I think Rainy Day in June is one too. It could start and go in a direction that would be sort of, sort of slow and, 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 and meandering it, but it doesn't, it really has a direction to it. And that's one of those, that's one of the two songs that really gave me uh, a new appreciation for face-to-face this time around. The eagle spread its mighty wings Pounced upon its prey And all the skies so brilliant blue Turned suddenly to gray The cherished things are perishing and buried in their tomb There is no hope, no reasoning This rainy day in June Everybody felt the rain Everybody felt the rain Yeah, well, look, I mean, face to face, if you haven't listened to it, what's your problem? You know, put it on. It's an amazing record. It's the first truly great Kinks album. Jeff, I think you're right. I think it's a very astute point that you made about the pressure, the increasing pressure 
um, which I think is one of the reasons why the music from the 60s is the rock music was so good, because these guys were all in competition with each other. Um, you know, the Beatles up the game, man, they, they LPs were just, you know, what your granny got you for Christmas. <laughs> um, it, it, you know, the action was in the singles. The action was in the 45s. Um, but the Beatles turned the LP in 1965, really, like you said, with rubber soul, they turned it into an art and okay, now everybody's got to do it. And, and I, I, you know, it's just sort of stretch, stretch out a little bit. You can see, okay, the Beatles sort of picked this up from the birds and they pick it up from Bob Dylan. So there's a cross Atlantic thing right. going, but everybody's got to up their game. You, you got, you gotta, you gotta up, you gotta up your game now. And, and sure enough, Ray does that. And, you know, it's weird. Like, I kind of feel like this album is a concept album or just kind of everything just slots in and it might, might be because I think Dave has one song. Maybe he just sings. You're looking fine. I don't remember if he wrote it. I I think he writes it, but boy, it's the only flaw on the record. It's not bad. It's an outtake from kink controversy. My own version, whenever I listen to Face to Face, I put in the B side, which I'll talk about maybe. Yeah, it doesn't. I'm, it doesn't I'm not fit. like everybody else fits in much better. It, it does. In there. If you all want me to settle down, slow up and stop all around. Do everything like you want me to. There's one thing that I will say to you. I'm not like everybody else. I'm not like everybody else I'm not like everybody else I'm not like everybody else And I don't want to run around like everybody else And I don't want to live my life like everybody else And I don't want to speak my life like everybody else Cause I'm not like everybody else I'm not like everybody else I think it's a great track, but it doesn't fit with the record. But um, a couple Just thoughts. Just one curious thing, but everything else. Yeah. Yeah. A, cu- a couple thoughts. I think, um, boy, Scott, I agree with you about Rainy Day in June. Um, that is a great song. And it's ominous. It's depressed. And there's the weather again. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's so, you know, like he just the weather ends up being a major theme in Ray's um, writing. And so a couple, couple thoughts, I I think like, especially if you, if you think about face to face in light of dead end street, which comes out just like, like three weeks later, um, Ray sort of like moving from criticizing the British aspirational class into sort of more of like a, a tale of two cities, which I think he's going to sort of develop later on um, in, especially like he's going to set up the countryside versus um, the city. And then later on in preservation acts one and two um, where I'm going to have some hot takes for you guys, but I'll say those for them. <laughs> um, but he's going to set up the countryside against really for lack of a better word, capitalism. But there, there's a sort of like between dandy and house in the country, most exclusive residents for sale. Like if you juxtapose that against dead end street, like it's very clear he's sort of moving towards this idea that this aspirational acquisitional great Britain of post-war Britain is not working for everybody that there's that there's something wrong indeed like deeply wrong within within English society at this point which I think is an interesting idea but I also think 
The other theme that he's going to work through in this or that is going to pop up later is his nostalgia, which I think comes in the song I'll Remember, which I also think really fits in with Rosie. Like, And I think one of the things about Ray, just in general, like if I would sort of like hook three songs together is uh, I'm not like anybody else, Rosie, and then I'll Remember, where Ray just doesn't fit in with the times. He seems to be at his most content with his memories. Mm-hmm. Like he has this memory of childhood, at least as it comes through in the music as a time of love and comfort and just true, like on almost kind of spiritual happiness. And that this has in a way, it's been lost. I remember every word you said to me. the song Rosie won't you please come home it's 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 a it's a song about loss and 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 it, and the, the closing track of this is you know is him looking back and I think it's ultimately he it, it's what makes him such a sharp social commentator is that he's not like everybody else he doesn't fit in um and you know I the other thought that I had when I was re-listening to this for the purposes of the podcast was you know, Jeff, you mentioned Session Man about Nicky Hopkins. It's a great song um, for so many reasons. But it's it's also a sign that, like, at the peak of his powers, if Ray turns his uh, sarcastic, sardonic eye um, upon something, he can make perfect fun of it. And he's going to do that. Like, doesn't Session Man, in a way, anticipate... Lola and the absurdity of the record industry in Lola, where he just decides to Mm -hmm. lampoon his own business because he can, if he wants to like, and and Jeff, you mentioned too, he's lampooning his own brother. He can lampoon effectively in the late 1960s, really up until he goes around the bend, I think in like 1971 or something like he can lampoon anything. I mean, the thing is, is that he he knows who he is. I mean, yeah. This is the guy who would write a song around this period called This Is Where I Belong, which is a very beautiful sentiment and is very true to Ray Davis. It comes through on these songs. This is the first time you hear. You hear it actually on one of their greatest songs that nobody talks about called Holiday in Waikiki, mm-hmm. which is the thing that opens side two. And it's, first of all, it's got one of the most insane guitar tones of 1966. Gets no credit for that boom, 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 boom. big pounding drum shuffle that just sort of emerges from nowhere. And then you have this, this sounds like his guitar is being played in a hollow can or something like that. But I the hear- song is all about the plastic. What you say? I hear a lot of 19th Nervous Breakdown in Holiday oh, and Waikiki. Yeah, for sure I yeah. do. And those, by the way, those bands were swapping so many ideas yes, between yes. the buttons as an album. Can't exist without Face to Face. But you get this song, which is so great, where like, you know, he's just an English boy who's won a trip to, to Waikiki. He's going to go visit Hawaii. And there's this great lyric. He's like, across the coral sands, I saw Hula dancing looking pretty. I asked her where she came from. She said to me, I come from New York City. <laughs> my mother's Italian and my dad's a Greek. 
I'm just in English, boy. What a what holiday in Waikiki. Everything is not what it seems. It's all it's fake. fake. It's all plastic. And when you just you've seen it up close, you're like, you know what? I'd rather go back home. just go back home and, and, and there's so many songs on this record that come back to that theme and, and basically our, our declaration by davis that like you know you can't quite you don't understand me there's an entire song called fancy which is like this very interesting it's, it's the closest they ever came to like a an eastern or an indian thing after see my friends although there are no sitars but the way they're bending those strings and the sort of harmonics they're getting out of them of the acoustics you know he says my love is like a ruby that no one can see no one can penetrate me. They only see what's in their own fancy always, which is another great way of saying people think they have a beat on what it is I care about and what it is I'm talking about, but they don't really understand my obsessions, at least not yet. No one can penetrate me. They only see what's in their own fancy. Like, you know, before we leave face to face, this means like, how can we leave it without discussing the hit single? This is the last time the kinks were going to trouble the charts really well, anywhere in America, for sure, for at least several years. But even in Britain, this was their last big. This was a number one hit single. And it was actually the one song from this entire era of the band prior to Lowell that I still sort of vaguely remembered because who can't? If they hear it only once, you will still remember Mm -hmm. Sunny Afternoon. Such a fun song. And you talk about the genius of Ray Davis as a lyric writer, as a sketch artist. This is his best. I still believe this is his best. I see this man. I know this person. I hate this guy. I kind of sympathize with this guy. This guy is, this. as I joked earlier, you know, like, um, which song was it where uh, it was his Ray? Oh, well-respected man mm-hmm. is this character before his wife falls financially to shit. 
but now, but now that the narrator's sunny afternoon is just sitting there, you know, he's got no money left. The tax man's taken all my dough. He's left me in my stately home, lazing on a sunny afternoon. I can't even sail my yacht. He's taken everything I got. All I've got's this sunny afternoon. You shouldn't sympathize with this guy. He's the richest bastard on the planet. There's this great lyric. It's like the funny. I shouldn't laugh so much at it, but I love it every time. My girlfriend's run off with my car, gone back to her mom and pa telling tales of drunkenness and cruelty. <laughs> I can only imagine the stories. So he's just sitting there sipping at his ice cold beer. He doesn't care. He's totally gone. He's given up. He's quit. He is in the complete like sort of nihilism mode at whatever. We're going to watch Rome burn. We're going to fiddle. We're going to have some fun. We're going to enjoy a sunny afternoon. There's a reason this is a classic. It's a great song. My girlfriend's run up with my car. I'm gone back to her mom park. Telling tales of drunkenness and cruelty. Now I'm sitting here, sipping at my ice cold beer. Raising on the sunny afternoon. As I listen to Jeff describe it, I don't know if you had thought of this, Jay, and actually Jeff too, because we're all Rushmore fans. This is the story of Bill Murray's character in Rushmore, right? Sure. I mean, it, yeah. it is his it really is. story. Uh, it, he's he's given up. His wife is gone. He's depressed, and he's just living off the money that he somehow earned during his life. That is that's his story. That that is what this is. He's just sipping on his ice cold beer. <laughs> I, but the, the, the fact that he's just completely beyond caring and has sort of learned to kind of enjoy the fact that yeah. he doesn't care anymore. Yeah. There's like, this is not an admirable person and yet you cannot help but just sort of like the guy just because he just, D, it's DGAF. This man yeah. does, <laughs> does, doesn't care anymore. And here's the thing. This is, as I've said already, as we've all said, this is just a massive artistic leap forward for the band. And it was a commercial failure. Sunny Afternoon was a hit in August, right? It was their last big hit, both in America yeah. and in, certainly in Britain. Um, but the album itself didn't sell at all. Uh, and it was released. It was time to release with their next follow-up, which is very much of a piece. It was recorded a little bit after the face-to-face -face sessions. But I don't know if anybody has any thoughts on Dead End Street, which to me is very much just same kind of like sort of 
piano-based clomp that Sunny Afternoon has, but a much darker tale, not nearly as fun, probably the same, probably some reason why it wasn't as successful. That one was just sort of like you could this Luche narrator is just three sheets of the wind talking about how dissolute he is. That's fun. This one's sadder. It's like, you know, we're strictly second class living in a dead end and dying in a dead end street. But the music is amazing, even if the single never went anywhere. What are we living for? Jerome's apartment on the second floor No chance to emigrate I'm deep in debt now, it's much too late to hear that in November night. Nobody buying records wants to hear that in 1966. In November 1966. That is not what a song. What are we living for? Through two-room apartment on the second floor. Right. It's a really, no money coming in. The rent collector's knocking, trying to get in. It's a really depressing song. I don't it know really what is. Think. Yeah, and the people, the people that the song sympathizes with are not buying records. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's not a surprise that 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 album that song wouldn't sell. You know, nobody, nobody, you know, the the the, the, the you know, you figure who's buying records in England and you know, middle class Londoners. You know, in nineteen sixty six, they're buying the Beatles, they're buying the Stones. You know, they're you know they they want fun sounds and fun colors, and you know they want Indian, you know you know, rhythms and things like that. Ragga rock and exotic yeah, and, stuff. Right and, and Ray, and what does Ray have for them? He's got, okay, you're all, you're all enjoying life on the West end of London, but let me tell you about what's going on on the East end. They don't want to hear that. You know, they, they don't want to, they don't want to hear about life on the East end. They don't want to hear about any of it. And, and so and what what happened, boy, you know, it's also, but they don't really want to hear about life in the villages either. I think it's very mm-hmm. telling that on the same day they recorded Dead End Street, this would have been like October, I believe, of 66, October, November. Uh, they recorded another song in the studio, same day. Ray brought them both in. He knew he wanted to do two. Yeah. The first one was this one. And the other one was a song called Village Green, which is very telling because Ray recorded this little tune about a boy, you know, a guy who grew up in a lovely village and left and got successful and just wishes he could go back and reminisce about the good old days. And he put it in his back pocket. Mm-hmm. He said, this song is not done yet. This is actually more than just a song. This is the genesis of an idea. So although they were recorded it, we're going to return to it later, but it's very telling the way they recorded it was with strings and with horns, very almost of a chamber pop, a chamber folk way of approaching the kinks, which again, we are now so far away from rock that it's not even funny. <laughs> and we're heading into something else by the kinks. This is the 1967 album and the era of the band where, well, I mean, the thing is, is in retrospect, everybody loves this music and we always talk about it, but 
I don't think we talk enough about how radical a change this was for the band and their audience at the time. People don't really point out how the Kinks were also actively alienating Mm -hmm. Um, their audience. We look at this music and we think of it as, quote, classic kicks. But back then, sell this to the English buying record public? Holy shit. That's not easy. There's no guitar. There's no rock. I've gone back and listened to this album as an album, the way you would listen to something else if you had bought it in 1967. And you know what I realized? There isn't a single rock song until side two. Mm -hmm. Track one, side two, is Love Me Until the Sun Shines. And that's that's a Dave song. Right. That's a Dave song, right? They had to bring in Dave to do the rock, but the first half of this album, as good as it is, couldn't have less to do with rock and roll. And this is before, remember timing, this is before Sgt. Pepper's. It came out afterwards, but it was written and recorded before anybody had any idea that the whole Summer of Love and all that stuff was in the offing. That was just, you know... We know now when it was coming, but no one knew then. They're doing this. They're doing something else by the Kinks. In retrospect, it's just not a shock. It went nowhere. But on the other hand, we know in retrospect, this is the album that gave us Waterloo Sunset and David Watts. start talking about something else by the kinks this is their they're they're really going back into england hardcore now at this point um yeah i'd say jeff for me um what your reaction to face to face is is sort of is that's how i feel about something else um i i love this record i love it so much um i think i mean obviously waterloo sunset is an amazing song and it obviously if you haven't listened to it what are you doing? Listen to that song. It's amazing. Um, the song is but, just as good in its instrumental form as it is with the full band. I mean, there's this instrumental version I keep sending around to people. Just hear the purity of that. Inch, that composition is one of the most. There's a reason people talk about it as like, quote, one of the most beautiful songs ever written. I used to think it was overwrought praise. One of the things I found out is that the production, the Shell Talmy production of the single is awful. And it disguises. There's just something that glows about mm-hmm. the sunset. Maybe we'll talk about the lyrics a little bit later. I don't know.
just going to say with respect to yeah, the lyrics, what's interesting about the, I mean, there's, it's just an amazing song uh, that I, I, I can't, I probably, I, I don't think me talking about it would do much credit, but I would point out that, you know, the scene of the song is Waterloo Station, which is an incredibly ugly place in the 1960s. I mean, it's ugly. It's a train station. It's, 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 it's a symbol of commerce and industry and the movement of people without thinking about the purpose of life. It's, you know, what Ray's sort of been on about increasingly is that Waterloo station is where everybody queues up and gets in line to where they've been told to go. Right. And, and it's, it's all, all that does is set this, it's the setting of the story. Right. But you know, I, one of the, I really, really like the first side of this record, particularly because I think like one, one of the things that Ray does between, um, David Watts and two sisters, no return, Harry rag, tin soldier, man, they're all like, they're, they're these little vignettes of characters. And it's remarkable because none of those songs are longer than three minutes. Um, and yet Ray is able to paint a funny and each of these, a funny, compelling, oftentimes sympathetic, um, uh, sympathetic portrait. The only thing I would add is, is so the song Harry Rag, obviously, like when you listen to it, it's about um, cigarettes. That's English. Yeah, slang it's a rhyming cig- slag for a fag. Right. Know, which is, again, you have to right. really know a lot about British culture to pick that out. Right. And I had, um, I goodness, it must have been right around the time we recorded this. And it might have even been the reason why I started listening to the Kinks again to get ready for this. And I started, I started singing that song to my daughter, who was, I think the first time we recorded this, she would have probably been like three or so. <laughs> that was like her, her song, her, the song that I'd sing to her at like to put her to bed and she loved it. I mean, cause it's just such a great song. You don't mm-hmm. need to know anything about anything just to not, just to love the song. thing i would add too is that this is sort of the false start almost of 
Dave Davis as a solo artist. I think he had, yeah, yeah, Death of a Clown, Love Me Till the Sun Shines, even Funny Face. Um, I think he had an abortive solo album that was ready. I just, maybe this is as good a point as any to talk about how, you know, you have, talk about a little bit about Dave. Dave's going to come back later on. No, Ray will, they'll, they'll say that, you know, um, Village Green was very much a group, comp- a group effort in the studio. So this is not simply like Ray going on. This is, Ray is not doing what maybe like, Pete Townsend would do is he would come in with these fully formed demos and then he just have the Ox and Mooney give them the who treatment. Um, apparently it's more of a, a, a group effort, but you know, there is something I think a little sad or I'm not, not sure exactly what to say about it, but I mean, Jeff, you pointed out, right. There's not a rock song until the second side of the album. And Ray Davis is really one of the great rock guitarists of the 60s. And like when you one of the really my favorite thing about him is how tight he plays and how he's able to do a a, a guitar solo that's really heavy, but that's also very tight. And that's, of course, British hard rock is not going to be moving in the direction of tightness. Um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, he had done that in the, in the, in the mid sixties. And now here in the late sixties, Ray's moving away from rock and roll, but Dave is gonna, Dave will be back later on. Like in the seventies, Ray decides that he needs a little, um, my buddy, Dan, who's a, actually a listener of your podcast guys, he's a huge Kinks fan. Um, and my buddy Dan always says is that like, whenever, like, Dave is always there to provide the muscle when, when maybe Ray's songwriting chops have faltered a little bit. That's when you begin to see Dave really slide in and offer that kick that when Ray can't deliver it with the lyric and the melody, but that he's almost sort of like his skills at this point are sort of under, underutilized because Ray doesn't need them. Ray doesn't need that kick um, to tell the story of like, for instance, two sisters. He doesn't need that. The aspect of Dave as a foil, because like Death of a Clown is, is the song that's written by both Dave and Ray. And you just know that Ray had been waiting to collaborate on that song for all time, because it's a song about Dave getting married. Oh, it's the death of a clown. I can no longer go out and 
party. And it's a it's it's his songwriting voice, as you point out, Jay. It's just such a stunning emergence. There's that song, Death of a Clown, is light years ahead. Anything he'd either sung or put his name to in any way, and it wasn't going to be a one-off for him. You especially see this around well, this will be part two. Where I talk about how Dave Davis's B-sides from Arthur are better than half of what's on Arthur. The problem is that it didn't fit thematically with Arthur, <laughs> even though it's better music, it's better rock, and great lyrics too. But yeah, so the big the big story for something else, aside from all of the oompa music and all of the, the retreat from rock, is Dave's emergence as compensating. Because again, you know, they're not playing guitar anymore. He's a songwriter who had something major to contribute to the band. There's a, there's a song from later on after this. I might as well just address it now. It's a single from this era called Susanna's Still Alive. Wonderful gotten Kinks classic. It was released only under Dave's name officially, but it's the full band. And it's driven actually mostly by harmonica and piano. But it's just a wonderful, sad, bluesy little love song of the kind of thing that, you know, that, that, that first of all, I don't think Ray was writing that music ever. It wasn't even his style. It was a new kind of a sound and a, and a genuinely original contribution of the likes that you didn't get from Ray Davis. And that's what made uh, just another little wonderful aspect of this era of the band. And of course, the other problem is the psychodrama on Death of a Clown is immediately mirrored right after it with Two Sisters, a song that I know Scott already mentioned. I've already, I've loved this song forever. It's about the stay-at-home sister who feels like ugly and frumpy. She's got her hair up in curlers and she's got a big, like a makeup, one of those like mat, those like weird masks on, you know, that makes you look like a <laughs> horror show. She feels like she's wearing a bathrobe, probably eating chocolate. She feels as unsexy as possible compared to, you know, Sabella. There's Priscilla and Sabella are the two sisters. Well, obviously one's Ray and one's Dave. And then, you know, the Ray version, I think is Priscilla finally just decides that I don't need to be glamorous after all. I can just be who I am. I can just take my curls out and dance around the house and it doesn't matter. I can be me. It's a very kind of in its own sad way. It's so touching, but it's it's like the revelation that you don't have to be someone else and it's okay to only be yourself. She was so jealous of her sister. So looked into the wardrobe. Priscilla looked into the frying pan And the bacon and eggs And the breakfast dessert She was so jealous of her sister And her way of life And her luxury flat She was so jealous of her sister She threw away her dirty dishes Just to be free again Her woman's weekly magazine just to be free 
guess the last thing I want to say, you know, and I'll turn to Scott after this, is that uh, Situation Vacant is, is, in my mind, secretly the best song on this record. Mm-hmm. There's another hidden <laughs> gem. Situation Vacant is such a fantastic, it's the only thing on side one that even approaches rock because it has a groove. It's not like a rock song. It's, but it's just Basically, it's, dr- it's driven around that Nicky Hopkins piano. Um, and the band really clatters it together for this story of like a guy who's happily married, but he's lower class. He's just got a normal job, but it's his mother-in-law who <laughs> keeps on nagging at him. Says, you know, Susie and Johnny were happy. They earned enough to pay a rent, but Susie's mom was never happy. So to keep his little mother satisfied, he went and bought the weekly classified. And, you know, and then Johnny's got no money. He's got nowhere to go. Johnny's in a great big hole. Susie's separated living with a ma and now little mama's satisfied because he's finally broke she's finally broken her up from that no good guy who finally tried to make something out of himself it's a bitter nasty little pill of a song and you could tell the band was so impressed with what they managed to come up with instrumentally because they actually just drop in the clip of the they just at the end after you think the song's faded out they just cut right back into that groove again because it cooks so well it's my favorite song on the album, and I don't think enough people talk about it. First time too that Ray, like Ray uses the idea of an acquisitional aspirational mother living out her own ambitions through the hapless in this case the hapless everyone's um, living son their ambitions on these songs David Watts is a song about all you want to do is be as good as the head but I can't believe we didn't mention it we mentioned David Watts when we did our jam episode. Now, the jams version of David Watts is actually pretty good. But this original version is one of the few times where you need Ray Davis to sing that song. Only Ray Davis quite pulls across that song because only Ray Davis sounds as nerdy and vulnerable as the beta boy at the school would singing about the head boy that everyone wishes they were like. He's so, you know, he's like so noble. All the girls want to be with him, but he's, he, what is, he is a pure and noble breed. Mm-hmm. Um a song of like just the most awkward and like impossible to really put into voice, like childhood aspirations that you're embarrassed. You're embarrassed to let people know that there was some kid that you looked up to and you were like, she's my idol. I want to be just like, you know, the older boy in the school. But that shit was real as a kid, man. And it was so fascinating for me to finally hear that song and found, oh, wow. So I'm not the only person who felt this way. Thank you, Ray. (laughs) I know what it feels like to be that kind of a weirdo.
guys have covered an enormous amount of uh, my notes from something else. I, I, I want to start, I guess, by underlining something Jeff said earlier, which is why, in a way, this something else turns out this way. In, 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 in ways, this entire era turns out this way, and that you can't understate the effect of the American touring ban, right? They, they couldn't tour the U.S., they had no reason to play to U.S. audiences. They had no reason to, I mean, in some ways, pl play loud in some ways, right? It was not the kind of show they had to take across the ocean and play for U.S. audiences. So they, they A, didn't have the experience of touring the great big United States and finding all those little stories or towns uh, in the United States. They only had what they knew from the U.K. And it also gave them this sense of isolation and, and 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 uniqueness that I think comes through in a lot of the music and lyrics on something else. So I don't think you can understate the effect the touring band had on how this era of the band comes through. Here you begin to, again, Ray is developing even more deeply these ideas of the simpler life being better, uh, being easier, uh, being more beautiful, and, and giving you a sense of, of appreciation of, of what you can do. And in many places here, uh, the idea that your, your status can undermine your virtue. The more successful you become, the less you're connected to the way things used to be or the way things used to run uh, ac across Britain. And so you begin, he begins to talk about the sedate aspects of life and the ability to enjoy an afternoon tea or the lazy old sun, sit back, slow down. It's okay. All those problems will be there tomorrow. You can deal with things later. Just appreciate the way things are. You guys discuss so many songs. Situation Vacant, if it's not Waterloo Sunset, Situation Vacant is the best song on something else. Really an amazing accomplishment. Lyrically, great, great, great little story. The suburban character study uh, between uh, a married man and a woman and the mother-in-law. Uh, two sisters Jeff talked about. Death of a Clown, you guys covered. David Watts, yes. Okay, so I'll go back and maybe put a cap on this. You guys can chip in with the lyrical aspect of Waterloo Sunset, which is a gorgeous song. Pete Townsend loves it. Rhett Miller from Old 97s has called it the greatest song ever written by a human being. So we'll see what AI can do in the future, I guess. <laughs> Ray's point here, and, and Jay got to this, is it is an ugly place. Waterloo Sunset is an ugly place with a dirty river and people swarming like flies and taxi lights that are so bright. And yet you you can get away from that. You can get apart from that and have this peace just looking at the sunset in this place that if you look if you look at the detail, it's dirty and grimy. And this is something that's going to be explored on Village Green, which is that dirt and grime might be a positive attribute of, of certain places, of certain professions. Come back to that on the next album. Jeff, you you live in Chicago now. Do you know about Chicago Henge? Do you know what that is? Oh, I don't. What is it? So, I assume it's something involving like a car sculpture because well, it's a henge. Be, what is it? Because of the way that Chicago, the city is laid out, the city, the street structure is laid out. You have the exact, you know, everything lines up exactly downtown Chicago, east, west, north, south. And so there That's are, right. there are two, I guess, two times during the year in which the sunset will, the sun will set directly between the, the skyscrapers of Chicago. 
And oh. it's this, it's this very, I mean, it's this very beautiful thing if you see it, right? I mean, it's, it's distracting to drivers quite <laughs> obviously because you can't see anything driving into the sun, but it's gorgeous. The way the sun sets in between, you know, the sets of skyscrapers on either side of the street. That is the moment. That is the feeling I think Ray's going for on Waterloo Sunset. You know, downtown Chicago, dirty, grimy these days, especially perhaps, you know, homeless and and and, and there's, there's misery on the streets here and there, and there, you know, taxis all over the place, and CTA stations and metro stations all over the place, and a dirty, dirty river which has been cleaned up recently. But the Chicago River, I mean, dirty, dirty place where they used to throw all the remains of the, yeah, of I the can tell hogs you being slaughtered, right? And yet, if you see the sun setting at just the right time through the skyscrapers, it becomes this very beautiful, you couldn't paint a picture that looks so yeah. pretty. That is what Waterloo Sunset says to me. That's a beautiful image. I mean, that reminds me, yeah, of watching the sun go down outside my window. You can see the city. And you can see all the grime if you look closely enough. But then you can see the sun shining through the, you know, the skyline, which I have a view of. And it's like, okay, you know, even urban misery isn't so miserable <laughs> after all. There are so many. Yeah, I mean, it, it captures the beauty of normality. There's another song on here that does the same thing for me. And again, it's similarly beautiful, although I think it doesn't get nearly as much, uh, as much credit. It's the last thing I want to talk about on this record. It's called Afternoon Tea. Uh, it's just beautiful little thing where, you know, what does he say? He says, tea time won't be the same without Madonna. And he tells a story about it. You know, the, the girl you used to know. At night I lie awake a dream of Madonna, the small cafe we used to meet each day. And then we'd sit a while and drink our afternoon tea. It's just a tribute to normality. You know, you would, would you like sugar with tea? You can take milk if you please. Like you talking to me because you ease my mind, girl. Um, afternoon tea, in a way, is the song that more clearly suggests where the group will be going next. Although you never would have been able to predict it. Tea time won't be the same without Madonna. That's where we used to meet each day And then we used to sit a while Drink our afternoon tea I'll take afternoon tea Afternoon tea If you take it with me 
Because first of all, I guess the thing that needs to be, you know, emphasized is how much of a failure this record was, not just in America, where you would have expected it. Who the hell has time for this in America? 1967, obviously. But even in England, they didn't have time for this music. It didn't sell. It was weird. And it wasn't wonderfully produced, I'll point out. A lot of these songs, by the way, you'll hear on our clips, it's not a lot better now than I ever would have in the 1960s when you originally bought this stuff. Shell Tommy wasn't much of a producer then. And even Ray, uh, he kicked Shell Tommy out during the Something Else sessions and then self-produced from this point onwards. Even he himself didn't really know exactly what he was doing in the studio. But what you have is you know, an album that came out was widely acclaimed by the critics who all loved it, didn't understand what the heck this band was doing that was so different from everyone else. But it sank without a trace. The mm-hmm. follow-up single sank without a trace. Susanna's still alive. I already mentioned that was great. But what about Autumn Almanac? Oh, that's a great Autumn, one. It's, it's Autumn Almanac, which is just like a beautiful, weird, curate's egg of a song. There's no, no surprise in the world that this thing wasn't going to sell. What is it about? It's about just like a weird, uh, an eccentric that Ray would have seen on his block growing up, the kind of guy... It's always like taking look, taking a look at the, like the bird and the tree and taking note of the temperature and writing it down in his book saying, well, season's coming. I guess we're going to have like, you know, four, four weeks of rain or whatever. The kinds of people used to be like that, the farmer's almanac people, which is such a weird thing, first of all, to write a song about showing you how completely indifferent to normal commercial considerations Ray had become at this point. But the song itself is just like a construction marvel. It's all these chords stacked up upon one another, various sections, throwing in Mellotron, which is the other interesting thing. You're going to notice some changes in the kinks sound now. They're going to not use strings and horns or anything like that, ironically, from this point onwards. Think of the, the, the albums that come as like, well, they're, they're very English ones, but the strings and that stuff go away for the most part. And in fact, actually entirely. Um, instead, they use Mellotron. Mellotron is the weird secret record instrument on these records that you never think because you don't think of the kinks as psychedelic. <laughs> but it ends up sh- uh, forming the backbone of a lot of the like the random songs from this and the Village Green Preservation Society era. <laughs>
guess before we talk about the Village Green, I mean, does anybody want to say anything about these these few singles that preceded it, all of which failed, and which also, in their own way, very made, made very clear where the band was going? I'm thinking of like Autumn Almanac. On the B side, there's this little nifty, nasty little song called Mr. Pleasant. And then there's Wonder Boy, which was another failed song, but it's a really clever thing. And then the B side of that, it's a real piker. It's something called Polly. Polly, something yeah. else. No, there's something else outtake that people don't remember anything about. But these are all this is the, this is the weird the, the the late autumn of the Kinks, and no one was listening to this music. Yeah, I I think if you listen to this days, I think comes right. Let's see, like right so around days. Days came right afterwards, and so Wonder Boy failed, and then Ray right. was really worried. He's like, I gotta make sure that people remember we exist. So he just, they were doing the Village Green sessions and they said, we're going to rush record this song. They recorded right. it and then they released it immediately. And so, yeah. But, well, that, it it that didn't even course. get, as great a song as it as it is, didn't even get into the top 10 in Britain. Didn't make a dent in America. You know, it's weird. Like if I told you, like imagine a band that you don't know of, like you just know in general about the 1960s. And I tell you that, well, in the mid 60s, there was this British band, that had two back-to-back top 10 bangers, three really, bangers that hit in the United States of America, three in a row, three singles, bang, bang, bang. And by the end of the decade, they've produced three LPs that are not, there's not a single skip, but on all three LPs, you don't skip a single song. And you'd be like, oh, are we, well, we're talking about, it must be the Beatles or maybe it's the who, like maybe that, are we talking about the who? Or like, wow, this band must have like launched itself into the stratosphere. And well, no, it didn't. It's in fact, the exact opposite launched story. launched themselves into obscurity. Right. And, and, obscurity. and, and I, there's something, you know, a lot of times bands will do that. Like this, this happens a lot of times with bands where they'll try something, you know, it doesn't work. So they're, even though maybe like in retrospect, it's sort of like music nerds appreciate it, but the audience didn't appreciate it. Okay. So we gotta, we gotta, we gotta go back and we gotta, we gotta get back to what we do. We gotta do something else. Right. And, and you would think like after the disappointment, the commercial disappointment, not the artistic disappointment, but of the commercial disappointment of face to face, right? Which doesn't even hit the British top 10, doesn't land anywhere in America, right? You would think that this would be that moment for the kinks where they're going to um, reboot or get back to basics, find their reconnect with their audience because that's what they're not doing here, right? Like their, their audience is still buying records, they're, you know, the people who bought Kinks records in 64, 65 are still buying records in 66, 67, 68. Now they're not buying Kinks records. So the, the, the approach would be, okay, we got to find, we got to find our audience, but Ray's instead Ray's like, oh, you didn't buy face to face. All right, fine. Here. How about this album? This is something else. It's even more in that direction. Oh, you're not going to buy that. Okay. Okay, fine. We'll give you Village Green, like even more in that. Like, and, and he's going to do the same thing in the seventies. We're like, oh, you didn't like my um, my vaudeville musical production of Preservation? Fine. Here's another one. Oh, you didn't like soap opera? Fine. Here's another one. Here's Schoolboys and like he's <laughs> there's a perversity to him where like oh you know screw you audience I don't care you know it's it, it it's <laughs> like it's actually really kind of 
I can't decide if it's insane or if it's like just commitment to the craft or maybe like at the level that race operating. Those are the exact same thing. Thank you for the day. Those endless days of sacred days you gave me. I'm thinking of the days. I won't forget a single day, believe me. I bless the light. I bless the light that lights on you, believe me. And though you're gone, you're with me every single day, believe me. Days I remember all my life Days when you can't see wrong from right You took my life But then I knew that very soon you'd leave me But it's alright Now I'm not frightened of this world, believe me I wish today would be tomorrow Night is dark just bring sorrow, let it wait Thank you for the day I love how we exchanged a pre-existing audience for one that wouldn't exist until film critics willed it into existence right. 30 years later. Right! It's, like now it's remarkable! Now everybody loves this stuff and wants all the reissues, but nobody could have been arsed to buy it back in the time. Yeah, Days, what does it say about the fact that a song is beautiful and as perfect as Days was? It was actually, it did well enough. I mean, they felt like they could kind of like breathe because I think it got at least into the top 20, which is what right. they were gunning for at that point to think about the kinks had been so big earlier. And now they're like, okay, well, we're okay with it. We're still around. Yeah. But it doesn't matter because the song itself is just so, I mean, for a song he rushed out, just like, oh, we got to get something in the charts. First of all, it aligns perfectly with the album that's going to come. But also it stands on its own as just one of the most beautiful. I I hear people say, play this at my funeral and stuff like that. And I can kind of understand, but in a weird way, the emotion of it is so, it's too heavy even for that. It's too heavy for a funeral. How could you say a song like Days is that? because it's this perfectly gorgeously elegiac memory. I mean, I think Ray wrote it about a sister. Yeah, it's another uh, sister song. Going, yep, another sister another, song. Another sister song going going to live in Australia, but but the image itself isn't specific in that way at all. It could be about anyone you know, and how do they leave you? Who knows? It could have been a happy thing, it could have been a very sad thing, but the emotional purity of the sentiment just survived. It could be anything. It carries any weight, that song, which is a miracle for things. Again, they just rushed it out to keep their names in the charts while they were worrying on what would become, while they were working on what would, I contend, become their single greatest masterpiece. Uh, The Kinks are the Village Green Preservation Society. And before we uh, talk about this album, does somebody want to kind of explain its genesis? Sing me a song or two, won't you get along to do? Sing to me, please, won't you whistle it too? Though I ain't got a bean, it cost me nothing to dream. So if you're waiting for nothing, do something for me. Sing this to Troubles away. 
Okay, well, so I think maybe the place to start with the Village Green Preservation Society is what the hell is a Village Green and why does it need to be preserved, <laughs> right? Which is, I think, speaks to, the, you know, this is Ray's English period. But again, as we've talked about, like, this is a, this is a time when the English English record buyers are not buying this this record either. And the people about whom he's singing are not people who are listening to rock and roll. Right. They're they're probably still when they listen to music, they dust off their old 45s from the 50s or something like that. So what's Ray talking about here? We don't really have an analog of of it in the United States of America. Um, We have certainly small towns in the United States of America and we have country life in the United States of America. But what Ray is talking about as somebody who lives kind of in the country um, is not like the American countryside. The American countryside is, is is relatively like isolated, right? This is, you know, why it's a very pro gun culture in the countryside, because in many respects, you're on your own population density is very, very shrunk out here in the in the sticks here in America. He's talking about small English villages, the likes of which stretch back millennia, right? Like literally millennia. Um, villages where, and the village green would be the common space of the village, of the, of the, of the social community that would usually be built or usually be constructed right, um, in front of a church. Cinematically speaking, probably the best visual for an American audience in the 21st century to understand what Ray is talking about here is the setting of the movie Hot Fuzz. If you've ever seen the movie Hot Fuzz. Yes, great movie. Now, that is a great movie for so many reasons because they take all of the quaintness of the English country village and like turn it on its head and turn it in. I, I'm not going to spoil anything. If you've never seen it, there's the second act twist. I'm not going to say it to suffice to say the parody, the sec- the parody of small picturesque towns. Right. The second act twist is a real banger. But that's so, and it's not surprising, actually, that they they use they use the song village green preservation society in that, in that song. Um, but so Ray's point, what Ray is getting at here um, is almost in a lot of respects, a, a coming together of multiple themes that he's been working on. But before I get to that, I, I just want to reemphasize a point is that a lot of times you'll see, if you go back and look at pictures of the 1960s of, of the British rockers who make it big, they all want to buy country houses. Okay. They all want country estates. Even Ray's talked about this. He's got a house in the country, right? I think that's on face to face. That's not what he's talking about here. That is, that's sort of a different vibe within the English, really within the working class, but also in the, in the capitalist class. Like there was sort of this, attitude in Victorian England as the industrial revolution is going on that like people who make it in 
in trade or an industry, once they make their fortunes, the next step is you marry into the aristocracy and you get yourself a fine country house. That's what a lot of the British landed gentry, right? Exactly. Fox hunting or something. Right. Exactly. That is a big, like the, a lot of the English rockers, Eric Clapton's a great example. George Harrison's a great example are they want to go like their vision of success and having made it is to go off and become part of the landed gentry. Right. They still leave these like the goofy rock and roll lives, but that's sort of the vibe for these guys. That is not what Ray's talking about here. What Ray is talking about is he's talking about village life of a small community and people living in close quarters with one another because it's a village. Um, and he's talking about that lifestyle and it needs preserved in the 20th century. And he'll, he gets into this in more detail in, in the, um, in the uh, in Muswell Hill hillbillies, it's being assaulted from multiple angles, right? So one of the ways it's being assaulted is urbanization, right? Like London is a place where there's work, so when you know people are leaving the villages to go to go work, it's being under assault. He talks about this in the preservation uh, plays. It's being assaulted by. Um, uh, real estate developers who want to take the country setting of the of of the English village and tear down the tear down the the hundreds of year old brick houses and build some ticky tack houses for, on the cheek. Right, it's being assaulted in that respect as well, and and, and it's being assaulted from. I think probably at least in this album, most importantly, it's being assaulted in memory. It's like. It's being forgotten. Uh-huh. These old this ways. Wonderful line. There's this wonderful line on the song Village Green, which makes it easy to understand how it crystallized the album and why Ray Davis set it aside. He has this, this the third verse. He's like, and now all the houses are rare antiquities. American tourists right. flock to see the village green. They snap their photographs and say, God darn it, isn't it a pretty scene? And meanwhile, Daisy, the girl he used to love back in the day, Daisy's married Tom the grocery boy, and now they own a grocery. Things move on, time moves on, and uh, that village green is just disappearing. I- And the preservation albums, Preservation Act One, especially with the main character, he falls in love with a girl in the village green. He goes off away and he goes off into the city um, and comes back and his girl's gone. And this life is it's gone. Um, And you see this all through. There's a sense of. Like I, I want to say, like, and I'll throw I'll throw it back to you guys in a second. But the 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 word that I would the one thing this album is not it's not twee, 
right? Like, which I think is, you would think maybe with a title, the kinks are that the village like phenomenal green. cat. It ought to be twee. It's not twee. It's though. not yeah. twee. There's not a single twee song on this album. It's because it's a, it's a, the under, under tone of this album is a, is a story of loss and lament and something that needs to be preserved. Yeah, I mean the the loss and the that's so well put, Jay. I mean, and that's of course how you reconcile that the village green, which is in some ways a title track, right? But then of course there's the real title track, which is the one that opens this album. And then I told you guys when I first heard it on the King Controversy, I couldn't make heads or tails of like, what are these people on about? Are they serious? <laughs> are they not? But you, in light of everything that Jay just said. You can completely understand why they stand up proudly and say, we are the Village Green Preservation Society. God bless. God save Donald Duck, vaudeville and variety. There's so many – the really great puns like well, we're the um, office block persecution affinity. God save <laughs> little shops, china cups and virginity. Sherlock Holmes, English-speaking vernacular. Help save Fu Manchu, Moriarty, and Dracula. All of that 19th century high Victorian good time stuff. Uh, to him was just something like, yes, I mean, this is, th these are my memories. This is my childhood. This is my Englishness. This is something that's beautiful. And the, the thing is, you, there is a certain, I don't want to say there's irony in what they're doing because they mean it sincerely, but there is a sense that you can't hold on to these things forever. We are English-speaking vernacular. inevitability of loss is what also just runs through the album in such like such moving ways that I guess to open there's one song one song and I remember mentioning this on our first episode I'll come back to it again the same way I did because it hit me like a ton of bricks when I first heard it I heard it when I was 18 years old and it already resonated it was the second song on the album called do you remember Walter begins with this really insistent, you know, crotchet of piano, bum, 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 bum. And then it's just Ray talking about an old friend who was like, again, kind of like that David Watts friend maybe in his life, you know, Walter, do you remember when the world was young and all the girls knew Walter's name? Isn't it a shame the way our little world has changed and all those little things that you did? Hey, remember, Walter, how we said we'd save up all our money? We'd fight the world so we'd be free. We'd save up all our money. We'd buy a boat. We'd sail away to sea. But it was not to be. I knew you then. But do I know you now? And then the third verse, I just, I still remember hearing this and thinking, uh, I've never heard somebody put that sentiment so perfectly into words, where he says, Walter, you're just an echo of a world I knew so long ago. And if you saw me now, you probably wouldn't even know my name. I'll bet you're fat and married. 
you're always home in bed by half past eight. And if we talked about the old times, you'd get bored and you'd have nothing more to say. People often change, but memories of people can remain. That wistfulness as it just fades off into that same unresolved piano night blind. That to me, as much as any other song on this record, Do You Remember Walter, is the essence of what Village Green is about. It's about nostalgia, but also the fact that nostalgia is a bit of a trap. Yes. Because there's there's nothing there really at the end, and we've all moved on. So what do you take from it? I bet your fat and married and you're always home in bed by half past eight. And if I talked about the old times, you'll get bored and you have nothing more to say. Yes, people are What do you take? What do you have left? Well, people take pictures of each other just to prove that they existed. People have memories of the village green. People have all of these things. And it all comes through in this kaleidoscope. This record is a kaleidoscope of these emotions, these emotions that no one else was writing about and nobody else has successfully written about, in my opinion. I'm sorry. I heard someone say yes. Who was it, Scott or was that Jay? That was Scott. I want to ask. Although I was thinking it. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I want to ask yeah. uh, I, both of you, but I guess most specifically, Jay, perhaps this question. And it's one I've been tossing around this time as I listen back to Village Green, which I which I love. So Jeff was saying nostalgia is a trap. And I would add nostalgia is a trick, right? Because um, our memories are not without flaw. And right. something I would I always I, I, I think deeply about nostalgia, why it's so powerful why it is so important to us, why it's so important to Ray here. And I always joke that it's it's the cheapest emotion because when you, when I would host a radio show, I didn't do this very often, but others do, and it's, you know, it's fine. If you want to host a three-hour-long radio show and never have to say more than three words throughout the topic, what do you miss about our town? Right. What mm. restaurants, what restaurants used to be here that you wish were still around? What what shopping centers used to be here that aren't around anymore? What did you love about X? And you won't have to lift a, a, a finger to find anything else to talk about for the rest of the day, because people will not stop calling to tell you about their favorite memories with grandma or the way the milkshake used to taste here or how the hamburgers are better on Saturdays, because that's when Frank worked and he used to do right. And we never think about the bad times and we nostalgia is powerful because we are always certain of the future. Things did not work out as bad as we thought. We, we are all still here. Things were not as bad as perhaps we predicted. Maybe even in Ray's case, maybe even in Ray's case, because his sister went to Australia. He spent so many songs and albums writing about it. Did it, was it as bad as he thought? I don't know. And so I think what I wanted to ask Jay about the themes on Village Green specifically is, if you go back to something else and face-to-face, it kind of feels like he's talking about a Britain that is known and is perhaps recapturable. And I wonder if we are to take some of Village Green as a fantasy, as a as these nostalgic memories of things that once existed, but not maybe in the way that we remember them because our memories are flawed. 
Um, is Village Green's past in a way different than the past that Ray talks about on the previous albums? I guess that's my question, Jay. question um i th- i think it'd have to this is not see what's so interesting about this record is that these are not his memories right i mean he he grew up in north london this is north london is yes. not it's, yes, it's, it's, this, it's, it's it's not the village it's it's, it's, it's it's the suburbs of london yeah i mean it's a it's a it's not the east end which is you know you don't want to go to the east end it's not the west end which is very posh the north it's a end very is, nice like it's kind of the way i would it's an analogy to like the way i grew up as a kid a really right. nice suburban a place, real, but, right exactly yeah. and so i think and it's interesting as well because he's gonna pick up on these themes of loss and nostalgia in muswell hillbillies where he's reminiscing over america which he was legally (laughs) barred from entering yeah you know Um, usa and stuff like that yeah 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 um and uh you know i'm a muswell hillbilly boy but my heart belongs in old west virginia you know um there's sort of i think the same thing there as well um and i i think he does i think give you the wink which is i think one of the reasons why the album never falls it's not schlocky mm-hmm. it's not twee um um because he he even you know like even memories are not beyond his um his sardonic powers like the closer right people take pictures of each other just to prove that they right. existed right you know even even memories. find so, that song so inestimably moving i mean there's something the funny thing is it's such a happy little skippy hoppy jump but the, yeah but it's a, it's a song about death is really what it is so yes the pathos underneath it to People take pictures of the summer just in right. case someone thought they had missed it, mm-hmm. right? You know, just to prove that it really t- existed. Yeah. Fathers take pictures of their mothers, and the sisters take pictures of their brothers just to show that they love one another. I've gone back and realized I haven't taken enough photographs myself of like you know my wife and my son during this period, and because I, I hate taking pictures, right? Me too. And like you know, and I I I'm like averse to it. I think I'm better than that. And then I listen to this song and I think to myself, I am going to regret so much 
not having those photos someday. Mm-hmm. I'll have my yeah. memories, but I won't. Even though at the end of it, he, his eyes are rolling over. He's like, oh, don't show me no more photos, right. please. I've seen too many pictures. It's too many memories. Yeah, he's, he's all full up with, with nostalgia by the end of that album. But that song, people don't sleep on that lyric. It's perfect. One of the best things that Ray ever wrote. You can't picture love that you took from me When we were young and the world was free Pictures of things as they used to be Don't show me no more, please People take pictures of each other Just to prove that they really existed Just to prove that they really existed People take pictures of each other And a moment can last them forever Of a time when they matter to someone Ultimately, I, I think that the album is, he's not taking the piss, right? He's right, genuinely, right. like yeah. he has genuine sympathy for the people who live in Village Greens. These are, but these are not his people. They're they're not, they're not his people. Um, and I think that there is, he doesn't have anybody, I think is also part of it as well. Um, oh yeah, we're going to get to that in a sec. And, and, and I mean, not to anticipate the second you know, the second, um, the second episode that we're going to do, but you know, like the main character in Arthur moves to Australia, just gives it all up, moves away in the hope that there's a better life over there. And Arthur doesn't find anything either. This is, this record is like, it's very quaint. It has a quaintness to it. The the music has a lightness to it. There's no hard guitars on it to be found anywhere. And, and the songs like, I mean, it's got some great, like, childhood like phenomenal cat is just sort of like uh, you know a good example of like a fantasy that two children would tell each other or yeah, wicked annabella seven year old that's a seven-year-old's dream or like right. some sort of story you told each other in this like you told each other but even so even though the songs individually are not really in and of themselves particularly dark i mean i think it it bears ray is really really good at being a confessional songwriter without ever really writing about himself Mm -hmm. and i think it's it's hard to listen to this album and not think about where he is spiritually in his life right now which is he's increasingly moving into a very very dark place like and i think he would tell you that like ultimately what really rescues him as much as anything is the lifting of the touring band he could go off to the states hmm. and just tour vaudeville shows across the united states like this is this to me is an album of a man who's very unhappy with the way his life is and he's thinking back to what for him is quite literally a childhood that did not exist. So yeah, I think your your point is very well taken, Scott.
Emotionally transporting moment on this album, the one where you really feel Ray Davis just absolutely liberated and letting loose. It's the song Animal Farm. Oh, yes. Open yes. side to well, one of the best King songs of all time. But that lyric, this world is big and wild and half insane. insane. <laughs> just take just take me to where real animals are playing, a dirty old shack where the hound dogs bark. You know, that we called our home. I want to be back there among the cats and the dogs, the pigs and the goats. The kind of like filth, slop. Oh, God, who would like this? I would love this. I want to live on the animal farm. It's not Orwell at all. He's just, I want to live around some, some nice animals, my animal home. And then, you know, I'll take you where real animals are playing and people are real people, not just play. Girl, it's a hard, hard world. Forget you down Dreams Of the fatal time In a bad, bad world I'll take you where it so funny you talk about like these little like childhood fantasies there are three examples of it i think on the album that in different stages of a, of a child's life there's phenomenal cat which is like you know it, it, like, a, like a small kid's tale and then you have something like johnny thunder which is about like the coolest kid in town mm-hmm. the one that you knew was going to grow up and go do something amazing johnny thunder feed lives on water feeds on lightning you don't need no one don't know what money and all the people of this town they can't get through to him he's going to get out of here he's going to do something but nobody ever knows whatever happened to johnny and then there's that last memory and this is one that's a much more mature one an adult one and that's actually one of my favorite songs on the album just hides away near the end when you have all these sort of like ponderous kind of ruminations on like you know like nostalgia and personal humiliation like all of my friends were there which is hilarious um it's monica monica all of a sudden just emerges out of nowhere this samba you know and all of a sudden you know ray is remembering this girl from back in the day i i shall die i i shall die if i don't know monica who was that girl you never met her you never knew her she just lives there as a memory that dances in your mind. And it was something that you never touched. Maybe if you had, it wouldn't have been as good as it was. Should lose money 
have those three memories that sort of underpin the rest of this. Remember, this is an album that's so obsessed with pictures and knowledge. There's Picture Book. We didn't even mention Picture Book, which is as close to a single. Although I don't even think it was released as a single. But gosh, this is the one that, like, if you think of, like, the quintessential Village Green era snappy kinks, Mm -hmm. pictures of your book, pictures of your mama taken by your papa a long time ago. Picture book of people with each other to prove they love each other a long time ago, and it breaks into that na 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 na, and they're throwing in an incredible pop change into this song about just going and looking back and these memories that you have or maybe you don't have, and all you can do is fill in the blanks. A picture of you in your birthday suit. Again, I've never, I've talked a lot about in the past of the band's self-titled album, the Brown album in America. In its own terms, it's a very different proposition. It's obviously trying to make this big, massive historical public statement. And of course, it's a miracle because it's a bunch of Canadians writing about America. (laughs) Village Green and the the band have always paired to me in strange ways as, as records that are just so different from everything else around them and in their time precisely because they are so like affirmatively looking backwards and with different purpose. Robbie Robertson wanted to do it to basically here, here, here's the summarized history of America and sepia tone snapshot. And then as we've talked about, Ray Davis is doing this. It's like, this is a past. Maybe it's our shared past. Maybe it's my own mythologized past that I wish it was, but either way, as much as I love it, it wasn't really mine and I'm losing it. And that's what this album is about, about how it's all just fading away. Scott? I want to go back to Animal Farm just briefly. I, I think that's the key. I mean, well, yeah, the title song and then the first song, Village Green Preservations. So many songs on this record would be, quote, key. Yeah. It's so thematically but I, yeah, yeah, but I think just that the theme, the themes in Animal Farm, the, the placement of it at the start of side two, everything about it says this is really important to this album. And I think it is this idea of escape and respite from the world, those lines you quoted. Um, and I, I had mentioned earlier, and there's a few places here where, again, um, the, the the dirtiness, the the griminess is not is not a detriment to these places or these situations. It's an advantage, you know, on 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 Animal Farm, taking where the real animals are playing in a dirty old shack. And then the other song that I absolutely love from this 
record. I mean, I love them all. The one that hasn't been mentioned yet that I love, Last of the Good Old Fashioned Steam Powered Trains. Boy, do I love that song. And this is the, it's it's this bluesy workout uh, about the the trip the train takes Smokestack to, Light. to a museum. Smokestack Light is their version of that song. Right. Classic, yeah. And the way that the pace quickens throughout and the harmonica being brought in over this just pretty much basic like howling wolf kind of kind of riff and this is a celebration of all that stuff the noise the clatter the blood and sweat and the soot and the scum that has to do with these old-fashioned steam power trains but it doesn't matter because it's this it's part of this virtuous world that Ray has pictured and painted that is being destroyed by new technology. And maybe that blood and sweat and scum made us better people in some way, made us closer in some way, got us closer to what we needed to survive. Uh, That's just all part of the virtuousness of the past. Picture Book and Johnny Thunder, and those are two. There might be one of the two other places here where it's it's the it's that wordless melody, right? In Picture Book, you got Jeff the da da ba 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 la la, right? And then in Johnny Thunder, you got the ba ba da ba 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 da da. So it's very childlike in a way too. You mentioned those those sort of childlike fantasy escapes that run through the record. Well, even in the other songs, there are these places, these these portions that sort of bring us back to childhood as well. Um, I'm just looking through notes. Um, uh, boy, we've talked about a ton of stuff. Um, I would say all my friends were there. I just want to mention because we almost had an all my friends were there moment on the taping of the show where Jeff was down and out and unable <laughs> to perform. And, uh, and you know, we're going to make him go through with this uh, the taping of the episode. No, no, he's good. He, we, we let him miss the show. Unlike Ray, who went on sick and played a terrible show, then had to face his friends, friends at the cafe the next day and sort of explain away why his performance was so terrible. Um, yeah. I, no, no, the best part about that li- lyric that makes me laugh so much is that not only all of my friends there, not just my friends, but their best friends. Right. Yeah, their <laughs> friends too. This <laughs> is like it's 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 as bad as social humiliation. Like word is gonna spread <laughs> about how much I blew it, and that's what makes it so funny. My big day, it was the biggest day of my life. It was the summit of my long career, but I fell so down and I drunk too much beer. The management said that I should never appear. Onto the stage and started to speak The first night I missed for a couple of years I explained to the crowd and they started to cheer And just when I wanted no one to be there All of my friends were there Not just my friends, but their best friends too All of my friends were there to stand and stare Say what they may, all of their friends may not stay. You know, I, 
I guess maybe something we've talked about this, but so this album comes out. Let me see here. I have it here. So July 1968. So like right in the middle of 1968. And I think it later than that. I think it was actually the fall. It was like was it, November. They 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 released they released like a, a it's European November. Version. They, they withdrew it and then they, oh, they expanded. Okay. They added a bunch of tracks. I think the final version is more like October. It's or something November twenty like second, nineteen sixty eight. As they have that page. There you go, November. So okay. one of yeah. one of the things, if you look at people doing, like if you just Google the best albums of nineteen sixty eight, I guarantee you that rock journalists will put this album on there. But this album, we've talked about how it is commercially, it's a dud. I mean, it's, I think it's their first one that just doesn't chart on either. So maybe it hits a hundred. You have to understand, it doesn't even chart. It doesn't make the top 100. It's a dud. And like that, that's what happens when you're you're like the monkeys were still in 1968 doing way better than that. Their commercial prospects had utterly they're yeah and so like you know i just like if you you listen to this record and then look at what the uh, what like what are the popular big albums of 68 you have bookends by simon garfunkel you have the white album obviously hendrix is doing electric ladyland you have beggar's banquet by the beggar's banquet um cheap thrills by janice um van morrison's doing astral weeks like it's really hard to sort of uh, maybe the only proper analogy for like what other band does this look like? Maybe the Beach Boys. Like yeah, I would right. like the now, Beach the Beach Boys in by the late I love the Beach Boys dis- discography pretty much up through um, the Beach Boys Love You, like pretty much almost without exceptions. I don't like 16 big ones, but like I love like when Brian goes into bed for like 10 years, for me, that's like Carl just has this great take. I'll take over the reins and we're just going to make this great music. But like if like maybe the, the, the analogy for this record is actually like the 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 Beach Boys friends. Like I, friends I comes analogy. This friends comes one. out in 1968, and like for music nerds, friends is a revelation. But in 1968, if you compare it to what else is, it's just so relentlessly weird and relentlessly and unabashedly and even proudly, unlike everything else, it stands no chance commercially speaking. Like this, this album was, was doomed from, from the first note that they played with the vision that Ray had. This album was never going to be a success. Except in retrospect. Except in retrospect. Yeah. Because like, because like, I I would say like Wild Honey as well. Like if you take those two albums that come back to back, like Wild Honey and Friends, you listen to, they're just, they're timeless. They're, it's almost sort of like. The what Ray's doing here, I think, is like he's like stranded on an island. You know, he loves being on an island, right? And he's got he like throws. He has like a, a bottle, and he puts a message in it, and he throws it out like a message in a bottle, and like it just gets discovered by a bunch of nerds in the mid nineties. <laughs> Shines on you, believe me. 
This is fascinating. It, you know what? It didn't just get discovered by a bunch of nerds in the mid-90s. It got discovered by a bunch of rock critics, even at the time, who were actually, and it's probably one of the very few times you could ever say, well, the critics really got this right and they all banded together. They noticed that this music was great yeah. in America and in England, and they were like a little bit appalled at how little it was selling. They couldn't sell it, yep. And so they all kind of decided to get together and like back the cakes when the next time they came out of the gate, given what they'd done here on face-to-face on something else, and especially on Village Green, they were determined the next time the kinks were going to put out an album, they were going to give them as much support as was possible, which I think really paid off, really played a huge role in the next phase of their career. But that is a story that we will return to when we begin part two of this show. Ah, that's a tease, folks. This is where the dramatic music would come in. <laughs> that's <laughs> that, that, I mean, that's we, we leaves us with this album that, that is one of the greatest records ever made, forgotten in its day, beloved now, mm-hmm. and uh, it wouldn't be the first. It's one of those records that is as good as everybody says it is. Yep, yep. That, All though, right. is part one of this look at the kinks. Do it again. And as we get to this is even better than last time, too. We have double the kinks recommendations to make because last time one show, you know, just just two and five. Now we got four and ten when it's complete. So we uh, we recommend to you two albums you must own, five tracks you should hear from these, this first era as we cover it on Political Beats from the Kinks. And we turn it back over to our guest, Jay Cost, to start us there. Jay, your two albums and your five songs from this era. Well, I would say the two albums for me are Something Else and Village Green um, in terms of five songs. And again, this is one of those things where I don't, you know, it's it's just going to be the songs because they're all like you could pick. They're all amazing. Right. Um, I probably for me, I really I, I love Village Green Preservation Society. I have a lot of happy memories uh, surrounding my daughter with the song Harry Rag. Um, I love Waterloo Sunset. Um, that's three dedicated follower of fashion and probably I'm going to give one to Dave. I'm going to give him. You really got me because you know what? Dave doesn't get his due. So there you go. All right. Um, let's see. My two albums, uh, even more clearly than last time, uh, face to face and village green. Those are the two albums, I think, from this era that you need to own. And if I go back to the songs, I'm, I'm going to just shove off all day and all the night. I, I'm going to assume that you've heard it. So um, I actually will start with, I'm going to start with Face to Face and uh, and take Dandy from Face to Face as the first track uh, that I'll recommend. And then um, A Sunny Afternoon w- would be my second. Give me a Situation Vacant. And and then two from Village Green, last of the good old fashioned steam power trains and Animal Farm. Those would be my five tracks from this era. Jeff, over to you. I mean, ironically enough, the pick I made for our original episode is the same pick as I'm making for this one. Um, which is another reason why it's great to do a two-parter, because now there's a different era that we could discuss later, but face to face. And the kinks are the Village Green Preservation Society are just obviously the two greatest records from this era. 
and I'm going to do the thing to ensure maximum spread. You need to hear every song on all those albums. Those albums are just basically perfect, both of them. So the other five are going to come from the rest of their career. I'm going to start with All Day of All of the Night. I, I know Scott thought he was too good for it, but I'm not. I, love it. <laughs> I mean, as far as early King singles go, this is my favorite of them all. I mean, it's just blunt, like a, like a hammer to the skull in the best possible way. Then from King Controversy, it's I'm on an Island, easily the best part of that one. Um, I'll take a B-side for a Dave track. It's I'm Not Like Anybody Else. It's the B-side of Sunny Afternoon. It should have been on Face to Face. And if it had been, I wouldn't even have to mention it here. But God, it's great. And it's such a snarl and a declaration of purpose. Ray wrote it, but it feels like it could come from both of them. It's basically, it's not a Ray Davis statement. It's a Kinks statement par excellence. Situation Vacant from something else. Of course, you know, I already mentioned it's my favorite on the album. Scott mentioned it as well. And I guess, I mean, listen, it's the kinks. I'd be remiss if we didn't end this show with what is still widely considered to be one of the greatest and most beautiful songs ever written. And that is Waterloo Sunset. A song about finding the beauty in the midst of urban misery and understanding that it isn't necessarily like the scene, the physical place that you're in that creates that feeling of peace or beauty so much as it is what is happening there, what exists and why you're there and what it means to be there and watch the sunset over it. That's what Waterloo Sunset is about. I get one of those pretty much every day here in Chicago as well. Millions of people swarming like flies round For now, part one of the Kinks Do It Again edition with our guest Jay Cost, uh, Gerald R. Ford, Senior Non-Residential Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. His recent books include James Madison, America's First Politician, and Democracy or Republic. He's on X uh, at J double underscore cost on X. Jay, thanks so much for joining us. And we look forward to part two with a whole lot of years left to cover on the Kinks. Thanks, guys. I had a great time. Looking forward to part two also. You can find Jeff on X at Esoteric CD, the new, improved, differently voiced Jeff. Uh, we'll see how long that lasts in 2024. I mean, next will return table to probably yeah. sound normal. <laughs> uh, find Jeff on X at Esoteric CD on there at Scott Bertram. Again, patreon.com slash political beats. Support us. Help the show stay ad free. Three different levels of support available. And that upper level with uh, a whole bunch of stuff, including our great monthly exclusive content episodes. You can find us at nationalreview.com or subscribe for new shows through Apple Podcasts or uh, Google Podcasts. Tune in. Find us on X. Enjoy the conversation there at political underscore beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats.
Hello, who is that speaking, please?